Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Mosler. This week I got George Myers, me and Madison. How's it going, George? Good. Glad to be here. Appreciate you having me on this week. Yeah, Very man. excited. Thanks for coming, for real. Anytime, man. I'm really excited to be on. Um, so kind of normally like the way I start, I don't know if you've listened to the past ones, but we start kind of, what's your journey from, you get out of high school, you're just starting out. Okay. What's from then to now? All right. So um, graduated locally here. I'm born and raised in Savannah. So graduated in 1998 from Jenkins High School. Um, at that point, did a little bit of college. wasn't really my thing. My parents kind of wanted me to try it. Did it for a couple years. And of all things, I went and opened a business. But the business that I opened was building custom cars. So I owned a company called Southern Car Customs. Um, I did that from about 2000 until about 2006 or 2007. Um, and then... During that venture, I had bought a little bit of real estate, you know, just for the business and stuff like that. I'd been lucky enough to run into a couple of pieces of property, and you know, we owned some commercial property right here off Mall Boulevard, and and that kind of worked out. And then um, in 2006, early 2007, you know, things started to change. You know, the economy was starting to change, and I, I'm not going to say I was smart enough to know what was going on. I was, yeah, I was just a young punk still, who who would listen sometimes and not others, but. At that point, um, I decided I was going to sell the real estate that we had, the commercial real estate, and look at kind of diversifying at that point. And the diversification wasn't for any financial reason. It was a situation I was having a daughter. In 2007, we were, you know, we were having a daughter and everything else in our first child. And um, I put the building up for sale for sub owner. Didn't believe in real estate agents. Was just like, no, I don't need an agent to do this. <laughs> and um, didn't need an agent when I bought the property. Don't need an agent now. You know, we just never really believed in it. Um, I had friends that were real estate agents. I knew people were real estate agents. My wife held a real estate license at the time, but it just wasn't my thing. Didn't didn't really believe in it. So I put the building up for sale for sub owner. Um, a gentleman comes in one day and says, hey, I've got a buyer for this property, but you have to have a realtor because they're a larger company. They don't want to take advantage of you. They want to make sure you have representation. So at that point, I was like, okay, so what are we talking about here? So the guy basically introduced himself and said, you know, I'd love to be your representation. I've got a friend. He represents the buyers, blah, 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 so on and so forth. And then at that point, um, we went into a real estate deal. You know, he was my he was my uh, real estate agent. I was his client. We went through negotiations. And because it was a big corporate deal, there were a lot of lawyers involved on the other side for the buyer side. Um, I had one attorney on my side and I had my real estate agent on my side. And it was just one of those situations where it just took forever. Every meeting took forever. Every meeting was a bunch of attorneys. And every time we'd come in, I'd come into the meetings and I would just be like, you know, I don't have time for this. Right. I mean, I'm a small business. I've got to run my business. I don't have time to sit around with you all and, and bicker back and forth about property lines and this and that and this and so on and so forth. So I need you all just to figure it out. And here's my solution. And I'd give the solution and everybody would be like, oh, that's not bad. And then next thing you know, we're doing an amendment to that. So as we finished up the transaction, it finally finished. It took us about probably six or nine months to do the transaction. I mean, every day was a nerve wreck of, is this going to happen? And we really needed this to happen. With the economy starting to change and everything else, it was one of those things where we really needed the money from this real estate to kind of finalize our business out and prepare it for sale and that kind of stuff. And so we did that. We finalized everything out. And when we got done, I sold the business to a couple of friends and at that point, I, you know, was kind of retired for a moment. You know, I wasn't doing anything. We had just had our baby. Um, and at that point, I was like, you know what? I'm going to spend a little bit of time trying to figure things out. And my wife the whole time was like, you should be a realtor. You should be a realtor. And I'm like, I don't want to be a realtor. You know, so finally, I had lunch with the gentleman who, who sold the property for me. You know, we had lunch one day. And I said, hey, you know, my wife keeps saying I should be a realtor. And he goes, you should be a realtor. He's like, you know, the situation is that you did most of the work. You just needed me there for this and whatever. He's like, and you know, and I made really good money, and I make really good money, and you could you could do something really really well. 
Well, the story comes around to find out that I went to school with his daughters. I graduated with one of his daughters. One of his other daughters was right behind me in high school. Okay. And it all kind of meshed together. And he said, well, here's the deal. I haven't never had a lot of realtors work for me in my company. He was kind of a single man, you know, um, brokerage. And he'd had one or two people here and there. And he said, so if you want to do real estate, I'll mentor you. But you have to spend an entire year unpaid, mentoring under me, no commissions, no nothing. You know, you can afford to do it because, you, you know, you had the sale and you've had other stuff and your business sold and all that kind of stuff. And so I went back home and I thought about it and I came back and I said, you know, this is this is crazy. I mean, I, I don't know about this, you know. So finally, I convinced myself to do it. So I, I registered for the class. I did the class online. Um, and I slowly took the test, the class over about a year while I mentored under this gentleman. Um, this gentleman to the day is is you know, to this day is still like a second father to me. He's my broker in charge still currently at this point um, for my brokerage. Um, you know, he's family. At this point, he's family. He's been family for years. But um, at that point, what we did is I spent the year literally just sitting in the corner. If we were in a meeting like this, I'd be in the corner listening, taking <laughs> notes, understanding. He was having me do contracts. And just like every one of those movies you see, kind of like if you watch like, you know, Karate Kid, you're yeah. always aggravated and pissed off. Because you're sitting in the back doing some of the work and you're not getting a compensation and you're not getting any credit for it. But at the end of all of the journey, it was a situation where I was like, man, that's the best year I could have ever spent. Right. I wish they would convert real estate for licensees to where they have to do one year under somebody, unpaid. Like an apprenticeship program. An apprenticeship program, yeah. unpaid to become a realtor. Because I think that some of the ethical things, the ethics that I have now, some of the mindsets I have now, and some of the work ethic I have now is because I came up from the bottom and got to see all of it, and I was educated. I mean, think about it this way. Um, a real estate agent will sell you the most expensive thing in your life, Yeah. and they only had to take 75 hours of class. <laughs> I, mean, I think that's the number. I think it's like 70 or 80 or 100 hours or whatever it is. I don't know the exact amount. But you get, you take a pre-licensed course, then you take a licensed course, and then you're a realtor. Yeah. And you go work, and like, if you're lucky enough, somebody walks up, and they're like, I want to buy a million-dollar house. And you're like, okay, I'll do it. Yeah. But I've never filled out a contract. I've never done any of it. I don't even know how to calculate the taxes on the damn thing. <laughs> but I'm going to do it for you. Yeah. you know? The other thing that's always been odd to me is if you go buy a $25,000 car, you get to test drive it, and they'll even let you borrow it for the weekend if you want. Yeah. But if you buy a house, you get to see it one time through the transaction. Yeah. Maybe twice if you're lucky. And it's usually the most expensive thing that people ever buy. So it's it's the weirdest thing. So I think that that one year of time that I spent with him was really well. So fast forward, I spent a few years working for him. In 2010, um, the business was growing very well. Um, I got in at the wrong time. I got in in 2008 is when I licensed, I believe. And at that point, the economy was just gone. The market was crashing, foreclosures. I got in to do commercial. Worst thing you could have ever done was commercial <laughs> at that time. And then at that point, it was a situation where I was like, I got to figure out what I'm going to do. So him and I sat down, we figured it out, and all of a sudden, investment came to mind. I had always been been intrigued by the investment side of things and everything else. But at that point, I had not done a lot of investment. I had done a few here and there, but nothing crazy. Now, I bought my own personal homes. We had sold our personal homes. We had made money on those things, and we knew how to do those things. But we had never done it from a professional standpoint. It was never our goal. Um, so at that point, I decided I'm going to do investment. So I went out. I, I, I changed the game up. I put out some ads. Everybody else was putting out foreclosure ads yeah. in the newspapers, foreclosure ads in the in the real estate magazines. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to put an investment ad in the real estate magazine. So I, I pulled together like $1,000 dollars. 
I got like the second page in this ad. I think I probably still have it in my desk drawer. I got $1,000 together. I bought a whole like two-page spread and I put an investment ad in and I got a few investment properties. I put them in there. I put in some information about investment and lo and behold, the phone rang. You know, it was just the phone ring. As a matter of fact, some of the first clients that ever called me are clients of mine today. You know, to this day, they're still buying. And like one of them is still a client today buying flips, you know. And, um, you know, that, that was 2000, that was 2007 or 2008. Um, so as I started selling these people properties, it wasn't for flips. They were buying holds. They were buying very cheap property. They were renovating them, those kinds of things. And at that point, we were overseeing the renovations for them, one-stop shop type of thing. We were building a model, business model that no one else was really doing the way we were doing. You know, the realtor would always say, I don't do contracting. I don't do remodels. I don't do recommendations for remodels. I'll sell you the property. You figure it out. And then you go find a property manager. Well, as we talked to clients and asked questions, they were like, no, I need somebody because I'm not there. I need someone I can trust in all three of these areas. So as we realized that, we organically grew into a situation of we were we were working with contractors and doing what we called renovation management at the time. Okay. We were charging a fee to manage the renovation to oversee the contractors and where the contractors were doing the work. Well, what we also started to see at the time is the contractors weren't doing that great of a job. Yeah. They couldn't even manage themselves. So at that point, we started kind of taking over some of that as well. And then last but not least, we had a couple of clients that came along and said, these managers aren't doing a good job. These property managers aren't doing the right thing. They're not controlling the money correctly. They're not controlling the tenants correctly. There's all these things. So what can you do for me? And I was like, I can't do anything for you. I'm a realtor, you know? So at that point, I took on a couple. I had one gentleman who um, who had an apartment complex. He had a few properties in an apartment complex. And he said, here's the deal. I'll give them to you to manage. And you can't do any worse job than anybody else. You've told me no a million times. But you can't do any worse job than any of the other property managers I've ever had. And I'll let you learn on my dime. That's They're, not a bad deal. Not a bad deal at all. It was yeah. the same kind of deal that I had from my original situation, you know, with, with my current broker and friend. And I was like, okay, cool. So I became good friends with this gentleman. We managed it. After the first, like, six or eight months, he comes to us and he's like, lowest cost we've ever seen, best management, good tenants, lowest, lowest delinquency rates, low time on the markets, all these things. Y'all are doing amazing. So all of a sudden he was referring friends and then our investors were like, well, hey, we want to, we want you to manage for us too. And then organically we started managing properties in a matter of like six or eight months. We, we, we had a hundred properties on the, on the books. Yeah. Like crazy. Like Dang, wildfire. That's like crazy. Yeah. That was like 2008 going into 2000. I was like wildfire. And then finally at that point it was like, okay, I think we need to take the next step. You know, my broker at the time, you know, and, and still my broker today was like, hey, you know, you really should look at doing your own thing. I'll back you, I'll support you, I'll do these things, I'll give you all the mentorship you need and the support you need, and you should really start your own thing. So in 2010, we started Mia Madison Properties. And at that point, Mia Madison is, Mia's my oldest daughter, Madison's my youngest daughter, and that's where the name came from. So we started Mia Madison Properties. When we opened the doors, we were managing, you know, 150, 175 properties. It was just me and an assistant and my broker. And then over the next probably three to four years, we grew into four or five, 600 properties of management. We grew into three or four agents, three or four property managers. 
We had opened a repair company by then. You know, we had done all these other things. And from there, we've grown in the current location we're in. Right now, we, we occupy, we started out a 1,000 square feet. Right now, we occupy probably 6,000 square feet. You know, we've got our full classroom that we have for training agents. You know, we're, we're up to probably 15, 15 to 16 agents. We're trying to grow towards the 20 to 25, maybe even 30 agents over the next probably year and a half, two years. You know, we're somewhere probably between um, 600 and 700 properties that we manage, and we're hoping to be to 1,000 by the end of 2021. And then that brings us to the current day. You know, and, and I feel like having this conversation today brings us back to where we were in 2006, like, 7, 8, because with everything going on with COVID, yeah, you know, and all that kind of stuff, I feel like, you know, where are we going to be in six months, a year, everything else with the economy? I mean, you know, the economy seems strong right now, but where are we going to be? I mean, what do you think? Um, I think it's been tough to gauge because, like, in real estate, we really haven't seen any kind of decline, right? But everything always happens a little bit slower in real estate, right? Like, Agreed. I think, like, in 2006, <clears throat> there's not a lot of people in real estate that would have said there was a drop, but people outside then kind of saw the cracks coming. Yeah. And then, you know, we were kind of late to the party. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I talk to people in different sectors, right? I got family all over. Nobody seems to say that the economy's taking a dip besides the news. So, yeah. I'm not, I don't want to get controversial, but like, just like if I'm looking <laughs> through my lens, like I just see what I see, right? And yes. Yeah. I don't know what's going to happen. It's kind of tough because on one hand, you've never had the government just shut down the economy. But on the other hand, you're, it's very small pockets of the, not, I mean, lots of people, but small geographical pockets of the country that have shut down, right? Yeah. Like you don't have, like the Southeast hasn't shut down hardly at all. No. Yeah. Which is awesome because we're in the area. You yeah. Know? I mean, yeah besides besides some schools and stuff like that. I mean, you know, I, I think that the whole coronavirus thing, first of all, I think that it was something that we all needed, not for the disease. So controversial. I don't want everybody to say that yeah, everybody yeah, needs yeah. corona. But from the world needing to slow down for a moment. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you that this summer I spent more time with my family than I've ever spent with them. You know, and that's a great thing. You know, and it wasn't because I didn't want to spend time with them. It was just work and busy and everything else. It was also not acceptable, you know, six or eight months ago. It was not acceptable for your kids to be in the background doing whatever while you're working. Right. You know, and today it's more acceptable. You know, it's when you're having a video conference, the kids aren't being disrespectful. But for them to walk by before was like, oh, no, that's, that's you know, that, yeah, yeah, that's just, yeah. that's taboo. Yeah. But in, in today's, you know, where we are today, um, it's just become more commonplace. So life has gotten a little bit easier, in my opinion, yeah. from a business standpoint. I feel like everybody's a little more caring for each other within reason. Um, I think there's still a lot of uncaring people out there. But at the end of the day, I think that when it comes to business, some people are like, oh, no, I understand. You're trying to do homeschooling. Or I understand you're, you've got your kids today or those kinds of things. I think they're being a little more accepting of that. I mean, I'm with you. I, I think looking through, through my lenses, it's very hard to tell what's going on. Um, I know that from an analytical standpoint within our company, um, the sales side <clears throat> is growing rapidly. It's still growing. The prices are still going up. Um, I can tell you that from the new construction side, we do a lot of new construction. So we, we um, represent one of the largest builders in the city. And um, you know, in that particular case, we're still seeing good numbers there. The problem we're having is the price of it, the price increases on lumber. Oh yeah, I the mean, lumber thing oh, is yeah. crazy. I mean, like you I see think futures. I know. Lumber futures? Yeah, yeah it's crazy. I know. Yeah. And if you look, I mean, I think I think the last meeting we had a few weeks ago, we were up 111% on the cost of lumber for what it was costing our builder to build a property now versus then. And so, 
I think a couple things could happen. I mean, if we want to talk speculations, this is all speculation, don't yeah. it? I don't want anybody to run out and, and, and use this to short the market or, or don't whatever. Don't make investment decisions <clears throat> yeah. based on this podcast. Yeah, yeah, disclaimer. we should do the disclaimer right now. I mean, you know, don't be a fool. Do yeah. your research. Yeah. You know, so I, I think the situation that I see is that any any false reductions in price will re-stimulate the market. So, for example, right now we're building houses. We're having nine and ten thousand, eleven thousand, twelve thousand dollar increases. We're seeing not just from our builder, but from other builders. Yeah. They're not making any more profit. They're helping cover the cost of what the the new costs are on these things. Yeah. However, I think at some point you will see those prices level out. They'll get a little bit better. They'll come down a little bit. Will they ever be back to where they were? No. Yeah, that's what my question. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. No, I don't think so. I think that. I think what happens is even if they could take them back to where they were, they won't take them back to where they were because they'll just pick up that profit margin without having to mention it. Well, I mean, if demand's not dropping, <clears throat> right? So when the supply increases, like why? Yeah. Why drop the price? Yeah. Like if and the they, and I up, think I think they will for controversy. I think they'll drop their price a little bit just to say. Well, we didn't just do it to keep the prices high. Kind of like they complain about with oil prices. You know, when oil prices were dropping, they were still raising the price on gas at one point. Yeah. And everybody complained about it. And then all those companies dropped and they had, you know, bad publicity, you know, bad PR. In this case, I think they will drop the prices some once things level out. And I think what will happen is the builders will do the same thing. The builders will reduce their prices back because they won't have to pay those additional costs because there's not profit now. I think that will create a false sense of I'm going to get a deal which is good for us in the, in the real estate market. So I think you have a bunch of people that rush out then thinking, oh my gosh, the builders are cutting prices. Yeah. But they're not really cutting prices. Now my hope is that happens when we're having a couple other economy things happen. But I mean, when I'm talking to some clients who are much smarter than me, uh, much smarter than you, not that you're not smart. No, I understand. But it's a scenario where these people are in New York, they're part of big hedge funds, they're part of the stock market. They've got analytics that you wouldn't believe. Yeah. You know, like- I mean, I was talking to a gentleman today who, who has his finger on the pulse. And he said, you know, a lot of my friends who are in these hedge funds and stuff, they're telling me that, you know, it's already happened, but the other foot hasn't dropped, and everybody's naive, and when the other foot drops, there it goes. I mean, I'll give you one of the best examples. Um, one, of my, one of my clients last, maybe two weeks ago, three weeks ago, was saying, he said, everything is false right now. Everything is fake right now. And I said, okay, well, what do you mean? He says, um... Everybody got PPP money. They're all putting PPP money on the ordinary income line because that's where it's required to go in yeah. your business. He says, so if you were to take the PPP money for the majority of businesses, probably 40 to 50% of businesses, out of their spreadsheet, out of their accounting system, they would be at mass negatives for this year. So there's some faults there. The other thing that he mentioned was there's all these stocks that are rising. Yeah. Yet they're reporting these they're reporting these stocks are rising and they're getting all this income and everything else. And a good one he said is he's like, We had this big blow up on Disney stock. He goes, and Disney said some, you know, some BS about it being because of um, the Disney Plus subscriptions. So his point was, okay. So I get it. You started Disney Plus. You got a tons of subscriptions because everybody was home for COVID. Yeah. But you stopped selling $20 Coca-Colas because yeah. the parks were closed. Yeah. You had the lowest attendance. You spent more money remodeling the parks because you never had a chance to do this before. So you went in and redid the parks. You spent more money there. And you were selling no $20 Cokes, 
no $15 lollipops, no $10 bags of popcorn, and you're telling me as a stock person that this stock is now skyrocketing because of this? He says, there again, I think there's some false negatives because I think that, that what's going to happen is in the in the first, second, or third quarter of next year, we're going to see reporting start to correct itself. Yeah. And when that reporting corrects itself, it starts to cause some issues. Well, the PPP should have ran out by now, right? It, was only, it wasn't only two months. Well, the like P- all they did was reimburse you for... Well, in the PPP, they gave you an amount. And now you're trying to get the forgiveness on it. So it was based on it was based on you putting in all the information they needed and then coming back and saying, okay, you're going to get $2 million. Now, you could do whatever you wanted to do with that $2 million if you received it. However, to get forgiveness, you have to prove that you used it for the required things that they wanted you to use it for. Otherwise, it's just a loan. But that money came in and you've not made a payment on it yet because the payments aren't due until next year. So you don't even start making your first payment until sometime next year. With that being said, everybody's got it as ordinary income. So they're living off that money or doing whatever, whether you needed it or not. You know? So it's just a weird it's a weird place we're in. I mean, I don't know that anybody can predict what's gonna happen. I mean, my fear for real estate is that the commercial market is Well, they're gonna, gonna get hammered. Probably. Oh gosh. I mean January. I don't know about here though. What do you think about here? Because like I think like in places like New York, San Francisco, Chicago, Atlanta, right? I definitely think they're going to get smacked there, but some of these secondary markets where they didn't shut down quite as hard, right? Like here, Charleston, even Jacksonville. Yeah. I mean, I think that if you look around at what's shutting down, some of these big brands are going to shut down still, so you're getting affected there. You got your Pier 1s that are going out of business. You got your Steinmarks that are going out of business. You got some other companies that are on the verge of downsizing. And I can tell you that in our commercial department, in our real estate firm, um, we're getting a good amount of calls that are wanting to talk about how they could walk away from their lease agreement and go from where they're in to what they want to be in. So, you know, good example is we we had a company call us a few weeks ago. They're in 20,000 square feet of office space. And they use every bit of that 20,000 square feet prior to March 17th. Right. Because that was when COVID started, right around then, you know. And um, now they're saying we want to go from 20,000 square feet to three. And they're saying we've been in this location for 19 years. We don't we have don't have a problem with landlord or anything else. But here's the deal: we just want to walk away. And we're trying to encourage this company. Well, you can't really just walk away. There could be some legal ramifications. So maybe we should talk to the landlord and see what we can do to kind of do an early termination or whatever the situation is. And then we'll find you those 3,000 square feet. But to go from 20,000 to 3,000, so. And, and, like, that's not the only company. I mean, we've got multiple companies that we've spoken with that we have not solicited. They're soliciting us. So when you look at that, those are the things that, on a day-to-day basis, a lot of people don't even know because, you know, we're not telling everybody those things. That's oh, yeah, what happens yeah. internal. It's internal office stuff. You know, so when you see things like that, it starts to get, you know. A little worrisome. Well, then think about, um, you know, think about a situation of Christmas. Yeah. Christmas is the biggest time of year for retail. Do you think that people are going to pile into the mall to shop? I think it's going to be really, I don't know, it's going to be weird, right? Because our perception is skewed, I think, right? Like, so, like, in Savannah, COVID obviously exists, but it almost doesn't exist, right? But when I, like, I went up to Michigan in uh, July, you don't forget it, you don't forget it there. Yeah. Like, it's really, like, everybody takes it so seriously. Yeah. So, I think in places like that, maybe not so much, but I don't know, you know. I mean, can you sit on Santa's lap this year and take a picture? No, probably not. Probably not. Probably not. I mean, think about that. Think about those kinds of things that we haven't thought about. Yeah. You know, so I don't know. I don't know where it goes. I mean, 
what I can tell the listeners is get it while you can get it. <laughs> you know, I mean, be cautious. I would say be cautious. I mean, you know, for us, you know, if it was nine months ago, a year ago, if somebody brought 10 deals to us, we'd have taken the 10 deals probably and got our investors to do it. And we would encourage our investors to do it. And if they could only do two remodels at a time, we'd have stacked the other eight up and figured them out when we got to them. Um, I can tell you in today's market, if we can't do them, we don't take them because we don't want to be sitting on something that we can't get off of right away in case something, as we said earlier, the other other shoe drops. Right. You know, I mean, I think the other thing that we're we're encouraging our investors to do is, you know, not have more than one to three in the pipeline at any point, you know, to do at a time um, and have them at different stages of the, of the investment um, scenario. And then the other thing we're doing is we're looking at those and watching the markets and saying, okay, we need to make sure we have an exit strategy. And our exit strategy on most of these is we can either dump it and break even, or we can turn this into a buy and hold and still cash flow it over a period of time if we can't finalize the flip and sell it for what we think we can sell it for. And I think that's a good plan. I think is, you know, as good as we're getting some of the off-market properties for, I think that plan works as long as you, you know, scale back your remodel throughout the process. What do you think is causing the reduction in the amount of deals? So like I know, like what do you why do you think there's such a contraction in so all these people that are supposedly you know you see in the news or whatever, right? Like the way people are living there is changing, people are moving, people are whatever, right? But in Savannah it seems like deals are getting harder to find. People are moving less. Why do yeah. you think that is? I mean I think I think number one is, you know, we don't have we don't have as many homes as a lot of markets have. You know, I mean, we, we have, don't get me wrong, we got a good population and everything else. We don't have as many homes as a lot of people have. Um, you go to some other markets like Jacksonville, Atlanta, those places, they're just massive. Yeah. I mean, they're just, I mean, they've got entire sections of the neighborhood that fill up half our city. You know, so I think that's number one. I think number two is that there, there's a lot of people just scrounging deals up that don't even mention them. You know, they're just picking up stuff and they're just going ahead and doing them. They're not even mentioning them. Um, so I don't know exactly why the inventory is what it is. Um, but I, I mean, it's just, it is hard to find deals. I mean, I think you know that too. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think the other thing is maybe there's a perception, maybe there's just as, just as many deals as there were before, but a lot of us aren't seeing as many deals because there's so many more of us right now. I mean, yeah, seen, maybe like the barrier to entry is like low. wholesaling is taken off, right? So and that's like that's what I was so many wholesalers. Exactly. And that's what I was kind of leaning towards is wholesalers. I mean, it's like, Wow. Like, I remember that you could probably name the amount of wholesalers in the city that were known on one and a half hands, maybe. Yeah. And now it's like every day that I come up, there is a new company. Yeah. There is a new this. There is a new that. There is somebody else calling our office and saying, hey, do you want to be on my buyer's list? I mean, there's more emails coming in every week, even when they don't have deals. And I think that's the other thing, too, is that, I mean, they've all gotten so creative the softwares, like we were talking about before we started the podcast, I mean, the softwares that are out there now, the technology that's out there now, I mean, I think that we're just spreading it thin because of how many people are in there trying to do the deals now, too. So there may be some perception of, we, we are low in inventory, don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that even in past times when we've been low in inventory, it still hasn't seemed as thin as this is. But the opposite side of that is, if you look at like the MLS, you know, which you don't have access to, but if you look at the MLS, the transaction count is just as high as it was before, if not higher. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So we're seeing just as many transactions and we actually tracked it very closely, you know, through the whole COVID thing. When the COVID first started, we were tracking it week by week, month by month. I mean, you know, it, and if you don't know that, I mean, I'm the president of the MLS. 
Okay, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, for 2020, I'm, a, I'm this is the second time doing it, but I'm the 2020 president for the MLS. Right. So when we look at those numbers, I mean, we're still seeing numbers as high as they were last year when there was more inventory. So that's the thing that kind of throws you off. Is it's like, well, we don't have any inventory, but we're still doing as many transactions. At the same time, I think those numbers are a little skewed because they're building more construction than they've built yeah. in years. So the construction throws it off a little bit too. I mean, what's your thought on it? Um... I think that I I like increased competition, right? Because competition makes you nimble, makes you kind of transform your business, right? It makes you think more efficiently. But I think that there's a real problem right now where maybe you're right about there maybe is just as many deals to be had. But by all these new people coming in that don't necessarily know what they're doing, they're overpaying for stuff or overpromising for stuff. And so it's getting really hard yeah. to get even just like a fair deal because... You know, you have somebody that doesn't necessarily know, in my opinion, what they're doing, and they're probably yeah. going to lose money on the backside or whatever, and they're just way overpaying for stuff. Yeah, like, and we've all been there. I mean, we've all, we've all been at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, we've all, we've yeah, all been so, there. But we weren't all at the beginning where there were 50 of us. We were at the beginning yeah. where there was two or three of us at a time in the beginning, but there's 50 of us now, you know? And, and I think the other thing that, that's been kind of odd to me from a, you know, you and I have two different purviews when it comes down to it, because... You know, you're from a wholesale side, an investment side. I'm from a, a licensed real estate side. Yeah. I look at it. And so for me, you know, there are things that are a little more difficult, you know, because of licensing and because of license laws and because of, of the way that I have to do things based on the real estate commission rules and regulations. You know, there are certain things that make this process a little harder for me when it comes to wholesaling and those kinds of things. And the one thing that I've seen more of this year that I've never seen this much before in, in my, you know, whatever it is, 8 and 10, 12 years, whatever I've been in this is the number of licensed realtors who are actually wholesaling. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah, like if you don't sell your house, we'll buy it. Like if we Well, no, it, we'll I'm not even it. saying that. I mean, like I was on I was on Facebook last night and we're all doing this. I was on Facebook last night and there's somebody who posts a property and they say, "Hey, there's this off-market property and this off-market property is this this and this. Contact me for information." Well, never at any point did they say that they were a real estate agent. I didn't know the real estate agent. Which isn't against the rules. It's against the rules. Yeah. But then when I then when I go to their Facebook page to pull them up on Messenger to message them to say, hey, send me some more information, yeah. I realize that these people are licensed realtors. And so you're in a scenario where it's like, okay, this person's now wholesaling a property. They're not mentioning they're a real estate agent. And then what? I mean, then then where does it go? I mean, there's a lot of gray area that they're in right there. They're in a weird, weird place. You know, and it, it's almost like, and we're seeing a number of these people. Now, there are other wholesalers, I'd like to say a caveat because I'm going to get jumped after this. Yes, when it comes on is is the fact that there are, are a number of realtors that I've seen who are doing wholesaling that are doing it properly where they're saying, hey, I am a licensed realtor. I am this, I am that, blah, 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 blah. This is the situation. You know, so, so it's just weird because you are seeing a lot more competition. And like I said, I'm with you. The competition makes you more nimble. It keeps you on your toes. You know, it creates a more competitive market. I'm all about that. Yeah. You know, I'm definitely all about that. What I'm typically not about, and you aren't either, is the ones that come in and do a hack job. Yeah. And then we all get a bad rap for it. And now we're under all of, all of us, license or non-license, wholesale or non-wholesale, flipper or buy and hold, we're all under a microscope. You know, that that's my fear for when you have this many people doing it. I think um, I don't know. This is this opinion is going to be unpopular, and it would not benefit me at all. But me, we've we've talked about this before. Me and my partner, and uh, I almost think that they should just 
teach wholesaling in like the realtor school and then like wholesalers just have to be licensed too. Yeah. Like they really shouldn't allow wholesaling the way that it is. Yeah. Because you know, you we people can just type up a contract, show up to somebody's house, get it signed and then you know, you know that, those people are like really they have a lot of liability, right? Like yeah. they're they're really vulnerable, these homeowners. They don't yeah. even know what's going on, right? Like they just think like you're gonna buy their house for cash and who knows what's in these contracts and stuff and there's really no repercussions for those people because they don't have to be licensed, right? Like, yeah. It's a it's a tricky subject because I'm not trying to you know and maybe enemies, and maybe maybe it's one of those things where you um you know you like you you're doing a lot of education you're educating people you're you're bringing people in the market I mean you're you're I mean you're kind of flipping the way things are done you know you're kind of doing like we did back in back in 2007 2008 2009 you're flipping the script I mean because you know it's like okay well y'all are doing podcasts and y'all are doing videos and y'all are going out and meeting with realtors and doing videos with them and you're meeting with other wholesalers and doing videos. And, you know, and, and it kind of throws you off because you're like, oh, well, they're a wholesaler. Why are they meeting with another wholesaler to, to record what they've done? I mean, you know, but the point is, I mean, you're educating a lot of people. I mean, I got to commend you well, and your you. partner for that. Thank I mean, you. you know, y'all need a pat on the back because you're educating a lot of people, both new and existing and, and veteran people who are doing this. So maybe the comment that you have right there, maybe that's something that you should take and you should do some training classes. Maybe yeah. team up. I mean, you know, maybe maybe we could look at something where we help from the from the real estate side to say, hey, here's some of the things that we're seeing in the real estate world that these wholesalers are running into. Because I get, I'm with you. With us, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of our deals right now are off market. Yeah. You know, we're we're finding off market deals, and it's because our investors are nipping at the you know nipping at our heels to say you have to find me something or I have to get someone else. Yeah. So we have to go do that. We search the MLS. If it's not there, then we go to Facebook. If it's not there, we start calling wholesalers. We hope that people are sending stuff on their buyers list. But what we're running into is the same thing you're talking about from a different aspect, meaning that when we sign the contract to assign it to us and then we show up to talk to the individual who's selling the property, we then are in a vulnerable odd scenario because they know nothing about what is going on. And from a real estate license standpoint, even though they're not my client, at that point, they are just a customer. At that point, we feel obligated to have to explain a few things to them. You know, we have, you know, just how the process goes and everything else and this and that and this. But I just feel like you're saying a lot of these cases, not all of them, people are just popping up on their door. Hey, I'll give you $50,000. And they're going, oh my gosh, I never knew I could get $50,000 for my property. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly how all wholesalers make Yeah. Right? just like send out letters, like call them, and like, exactly. how much can we get? And we're like, you'd be surprised. And and it's worth what you're willing to take for it. I mean, I, I get it. I agree with that portion. You know, but, but it's one of those scenarios, like you said, I mean, maybe if you maybe if we did or you did some educational type stuff like you're already doing and tried to get some people to understand both locally, regionally, nationally, whatever it is, you know, because like I said, y'all are taking a great step. You know, and what you're doing, man. Thank you. So, Thank you. so I gotta definitely commend you for that. Thank you for real. I, uh, I really appreciate that. I don't take compliments very well, but <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. Thank you. I won't tell him you're blushing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wanted to go back. So the first deal you guys did, you said that you didn't buy it with a realtor. So how did you find that first deal? So my wife was actually in a real estate course, and there was a gentleman who occupied half the building, and. She heard him talking about he was trying to buy this building and he really couldn't afford the whole thing. He really needed a partner, this and that and this. So she came home and she said, hey, there's this building, blah, 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 so on and so forth. 
And then the next thing you know, we were talking with this guy, and this guy was like, yeah, I'd love to have a partnership, this and that and this. So we went to an attorney, got some paperwork drawn up, went back to him and said, hey, we'll do a 50-50 deal. The way this building was configured, it would work very well. It was a 50-50 wall right down the middle, all brick building, commercial space. We could take the one side. He could keep the side he was already in. We'd be partners. If uh, anything ever happened to him, we'd have the first right of refusal to buy out the other half of the building, vice versa. If we ever wanted to sell, the other person would do the same thing. So we worked through a few different things. Well, we had a deadline to kind of respond on these things to both. There were two deadlines. Deadline number one was our deadline with him for him to respond to us to agree to this deal. Deadline number two was the gentleman who owned the building lived in like Kentucky or something. Okay. And that gentleman had given the tenant who we were trying to partner with X amount of days to respond before his first right of refusal was up. Okay. So we were trying to get answers out of this guy, this tenant. Never would respond, never would respond. I'm taking care of it, I'm taking care of it, this and that, and this, one of those kinds of things. Yeah. We came up within two or three days of the deadline, and um, the deadline expired. He told us he didn't get everything done in time, but he had it all under control. And then we find out that nothing's under control. We then track the guy down in Kentucky. I give him a call and um, say, hey, you know, I was going to be partners with this guy. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I heard your name before this and that and this. He goes, but you're too late. He says, you know, his deadline was last, whatever it was. And we had another company on standby. They've put a contract on the property. And so here's the deal. He says, if this deal falls apart, I'll call you. You'll be my first call. And I thought that was just a kind of a BS kind of move. Yeah. Because I was like, you know what? This other company's paying way more money because this guy who had a deal, he had a deal to buy the property at a like below market value because he had been there for so long, right? He just so dropped the ball. He dropped the ball. He dropped the ball. Like he could have been your first wholesaler. Like he oh could have just wholesaled this deal. He could have wholesaled <laughs> this deal, but he knew nothing was going on. So he was naive in the fact thinking that everything was okay. So we just like forgot about him and we're like, whatever. I talked to this guy in Kentucky, and this guy's like, you know, I'll call you back if something comes up. I appreciate you, you know, and this and that and this. And I'm like, okay, great. This deal's done. We're done. You know, this was the only chance we had to get a good building in a good location. Da, da, da. So, like, a month or two later, the phone rings. And I pick it up and don't know who's calling or whatever. And the guy says, hey, this is such and such from Kentucky. And um, you need to, like, wire transfer me or send me a check for 5000 10000 whatever it was, for a deposit. Yeah. You got 72 hours. And what I'm gonna a give, demand. And I'm gonna give, yeah, and I'm going to give you the deal at the price that your, that your guy that you were going to do a deal with messed up on. And I'm like, what? And the guy's like, yeah, he goes, this other deal fell through. You know, I think I think this would all work out. I'd rather see it go to somebody like yourself who's a young entrepreneur or whatever. And I, I was like, no way. Like, what's going on right here? You know, so so we did. We hung up the phone. We pulled the money together. We overnighted the check to this guy. And then we were off to the races. But off to the races meant that we were going to banks and sitting in front of them and saying, hey, we want to buy this building. And they were like, ha, 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 you want to buy what? You have all this debt. You have this. You know, you're young. You're this. You're that. Your business is new. And we were just like, wow. So we went bank after bank after bank, business plan after business plan after business plan. You know, they would tell us to do this. We would do that. They would tell us to do that. We would do that. You know, and then finally we, we, we met up with a bank and that bank and that person, um, that person really helped us out. They were really, they've become a really good friend of ours over the years. Um, and they're still a friend to this day. But in that case, they, they took a chance on us. They got us an SBA 504 loan. Um, if you're not familiar with 504 loans, they're a special SBA back loan. Basically what happens is, the SBA puts up 50% of the guarantee. 
the buyer puts up 10% of the guarantee, and then the 40%, the four in the number, is the bank. So the bank ends up backing the last 40%. I think that's the correct way. Okay. But it's a 504. It's SBA 504 loan. Very good for small businesses who are starting out trying to buy real estate. It's only a real estate type of loan. Um, so we did an SBA 504 loan. Took us months to get everything taken care of. We finally get things taken care of. And ironically, we become the guys. The guy who messed us up the first time, we become his landlord. <laughs> we later we later have to evict him. Really? Yeah, go through the whole process of victim. We move into one side, he stays in his side. Later on we take over his side. We become we become a landlord and at that point we're renting that half out and we're keeping our other half the business. You know. So, um, you know, and then we, we were there for a number of years and then we went to the sale process and the crazy thing was when we did the sale, we were we were the highest on that side of the street in that area when we sold. Even when the economy was already falling, we sold the property for the highest price a retail property had been sold on that street. Is that still the case? I don't know. I would doubt that's the case today. You know, I would doubt that's the case today. Um, but at the time, it you know it was because nothing had redeveloped. I mean, right. that whole section had not redeveloped for years. Where was it? Can you say? Mall Boulevard. Okay. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 So I mean, so that area had not been redeveloped yet. And then right after, right after the company who bought our building, they started the redevelopment process. They redeveloped that building, and then the building behind it got torn down, which used to be the old Kroger. There used to be a putt-putt back there. That got torn down, and then it is what you see today. You know, it is that big shopping center that has you know, Dick's and Expert Care and all those other things and Kroger and all those things in it now. You know, so that was the spur of the redevelopment, even though it was in a, in a bad economy. I didn't know that there was ever a time when Mall Boulevard wasn't like... You know, I thought that they had just built all that new, like, recently, or, you know, in the last 15, 20 years or whatever. No, so, Mall Boulevard was, you know, there was a number of retail locations that are still there. So, for example, the the little, it's called Rumors, I think, is a little, like, clothing store. Yeah, I know exactly. That used to be a Hardee's. Okay. The building across the street from that, um, which is AT&T, yep. that was our building. Okay. So, that's the building. So, that building was there. The print shop was still there. The Taco Bell was still there. The Wendy's was always there. Okay. Um, the building where Chipotle's is now, yep. that building was never there. Um, you know, the corner wasn't there now that Chase is on. So it was always a bunch of old retail and a bunch of old fast food restaurants. The other end, meaning the closest end to Waters, was yep. always apartments, housing, and um, office professional space. Okay. You know, so, but the major redevelopment was all redevelopment. There was a Kroger um, that was there for probably 30 years. That sat in the exact same location the Kroger is now. It was just a quarter of the size. You know, never a gas station there, any of that kind of stuff. There were some restaurants and some office buildings on the opposite side. Um, that shopping center behind um, Kroger, which is like where John B. Rook is, there's like a brick shopping center. Oh, yeah, like going back to yeah. like the, the what, discount stores. Only. That shopping center used to be U-shaped. Okay. It was about two or three times the size it is now. And then they tore that down and only kept a small portion and redeveloped it into the rest of what you see there. So that whole area is a redevelopment. You guys made money. Huge money. And that was all happening at the same time that they started rebuilding Broughton and those kinds of things. And everybody thought that was going to be the respur of the south side. you know. Um, and it did. It did a good amount. But then everybody started going to Pooler. Yeah, so that's kind of interesting. Well, so what do you think of Pooler? So I always ask people this. Like, what's your you, long term? Like, what do you yeah. think Pooler's going to be in 20 years? I mean, you know, I always joke that everything seems temporary there. 
Yeah. I mean, it's like when you walk into the TJ Maxx or the PetSmart or everything else, they're really small. The buildings seem poorly built and temporary, even though they're nice buildings. Yeah. It just always seems temporary to me, but it's bustling and hustling, I mean, and booming. I mean, everything around there, it's like if you if you put it and touch it, it, it goes well there. Um, I mean, I really, I think it's going to be what it is now. I think it's going to continue to grow. I think that the growth, as we start to see it now, is starting to head down 95 and towards 21. You know, as you yeah. go to Rinkin, you're seeing a lot of places go in right there. So I think it's going to continue to grow. Um, I think the growth will slow down a little bit because there's not much more retail space, in my opinion, that they can really do. I mean, it seems like they have just about everything you could ever want out there. They so need I, that Costco bill. I don't know what's going on with that. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's a couple things like that. But for the most part, I mean, they've just got everything. So yeah. I don't see how they're going to redevelop too much more. But I do think the housing market out there is going to continue to kind of grow. I think it also depends on how um, Gulfstream continues to do. Yeah, I mean, like, so in your experience, like, do you think they're going to continue to grow? Like, just totally speculative, right? Like, but I mean, we've seen dips in. Yeah, and I think that I think that I would have to imagine COVID has them a little bit because I heard they had a number of cancellations or a number of pauses. Yeah, I don't know how true or you know untrue that is, um, but I mean, I, I think that. You know, there's other people that have way more money than we can ever imagine that will always be buying planes. Yeah. So I think they'll be okay. I mean, I think, like you said, they've always had their dips. I mean, and I bet if you, I bet if you could look at a graph of their dips, they're pretty consistent. I bet. Yeah, I bet they are. Yeah, I, yeah, I bet. I bet it's like just a, a smooth wave of of up and down and up and down. And I, and, they, and I think with as many ups and downs as they've had, I think that they've learned how to kind of, you know, ebb and flow to get themselves through that process. So I, I think they're going to be here for a long time to come. And I think they're just going to continue growing and continue evolving. You know, I mean, if you look at their evolution, I mean, they're now doing, and I think they've been doing it, but they're now doing a lot of uh, military planes and yeah, you know, Coast Guard planes. And, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I saw this really cool thing on LinkedIn the other day where they showed all the different planes they build that you never even realize they build. And I think one of them was like a Japanese Coast Guard plane. What? Yeah, it was like, it showed all these different types of planes that were not like passenger planes. And I was just like, wow, I didn't even know that. And I think I read it correctly. But I was like, I didn't even know they were building all these different types of planes. I knew they had built know. them a few for the military here and there. But I mean, the way that this the way that this article and chart looked and, and sounded was as they were doing a good amount of other business that we don't even realize they're doing. We're so used to just seeing the G five hundred, G six hundred, the G series planes, you know. So that's um, I don't know anybody in the new in the new plane side, but like on the I know the salesman for like the interiors and stuff and he was telling me that while everything's been grounded that actually a lot of people are taking that opportunity to like refurbish their planes that makes sense yeah or upgrade the interiors and stuff which can only be done at you know this facility i yeah. guess or what you know i mean i also so they, wonder maybe where that's dipped you know that picks up yeah, so they're picking yeah, up yeah. and that's what i was saying where they've learned to ebb and flow with different things i mean i also start to wonder like you know when we're talking about this does are there some people who are right there on that cusp of buying a plane? Do they buy a plane because it's harder to travel right now and because they don't want to be in a plane with a bunch of other people, That's even if it's true. first class? Yeah, I never thought about that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, are there – I've never looked at plane sales because yeah, I mean, I'm, not, I'm not on that caliber, <laughs> yeah. um, at least not yet. I mean, but, um, but I wonder if there's more people buying planes, even if they're small planes, because they can't travel the way they travel before or they're afraid to travel the way they travel before. Yeah, I never thought about that. That's true. That's a good point. I wonder yeah. – I don't know, like an extra round of planes, but you know, when living in Savannah, I didn't even know when I lived up in Michigan. You don't really think about like the private plane industry, but here they employ like what eight or ten thousand people. Yeah, it's crazy. So you, it becomes a little bit more relevant yeah, for you, you know. It is, you know, and, and I think that you know those types of industries and the great thing about our market um, that I don't know if a lot of people realize is that you know our rental market 
is always pretty strong. The only time we haven't been strong is right now. We've got a little bit of a dip um, because of the fact that schools, you know, we have a lot of colleges, mm-hmm. and typically a lot of our a lot of our tenancy in a lot of our properties around town, especially downtown and midtown, are from SCAD. You know, when you have a situation, but like when we had an economy drop previously, you know, back in you know back in the early the mid two thousands, in those cases, it didn't really affect us because everyone who was getting into foreclosure need to rent a house. Everybody who was coming from military were renting for the first year, and then they would buy after that if they decided they were going to be here. Yeah. Or if you came here to do a contract for Gulfstream, you were renting a property. There were all these different industries, and still currently today, there's all these different industries and all these different schools and educational you know, aspects that keep us being a very, very strong rental market. And I think we always will be. Like I said, the only time that I've ever seen it affected in my short time in real estate um, has been right now because you're down on the student enrollment. You know, South College isn't taking in as many students or they're not doing as many classes in person. Um, Georgia Southern, which used to be Armstrong, they're not either. Yeah. You know, and then you've got like SCAD, who, who's not, you know, I think less than 40%. I, and I'll hold me to that, but I think less than 40% of their, their students are here. Right. You know, so you get a situation where right now, yeah, there's a lot of stuff on the market for rents. Um, and usually we're not that case. Usually we have low occupancy rate, or high occupancy rates, low, um, low vacancy rates. Um, but I think any other time in the market, we have a really, really strong buy and hold market that people just don't even realize. You know, well, I think we've talked about this before. I think there's like some statistics, like 60% of homes in Chatham County are rentals. Yeah. Yeah, which is yeah. crazy. Yeah, That's like think, way higher than normal. And I think you're about right because I think there's some reports that we pull and look at too, which are um, non, non-primary residency is how we look at it. Or I think they, I think they look at it and they say um, – you know, like if the owner has a different mailing address. Yeah, that's uh, absentee. Yeah. Yeah. absentee. I guess they might not all be yeah. rentals. I guess, yeah, but, but, but still, I mean, that, that's the word I was looking for is absentee. You know, um, so in those cases, you're right. I mean, we, we have a huge, huge rental market. Um, so this kind of segues into the next thing I was going to ask you about. So, like, did you guys see a huge dip then in, like, what, what kind of dip have you seen in your property management side since COVID kind of started? And then is that starting to make a recovery? Like, what do you think yeah. the future? Like, yeah. So so for us, I mean, we really thought going into April and May, we were really panicky in the fact that we were like, okay, so we're going to see high, high delinquency rates. Yeah. You know, and fortunately, our tenants were very good. Um, even our, our from our low income to our high income tenants, because we, we do a range of everything. Um, and what we saw was, a lot of people were actually getting their stimulus money and they were actually paying the bills. We were really surprised because <laughs> we were just like everybody else. I mean, I'm going to be that stereotypical guy. We were joking that everybody was going to take that check and they're going to go buy a TV or they're going to go do this or going to do that. We all said it. Yeah. You know, um, no matter what, you know, where we come from, that's what we were all joking about. Yeah. That's a, yeah. You know, but the scenario was we were very highly surprised to see people come in and whether they were using a stimulus check or not, we had a very low increase in our delinquency okay now the other thing that we saw this time was even when there was a situation where they paused evictions we were like man now people are just not going to pay just not to pay (laughs) yeah and then in addition to that we're going to see a lot of people who just hold over you know but that wasn't the case either what we what we saw surprisingly it was actually you know a little bit of humanity we kind of were like wow this is crazy we had a good amount of tenants who showed up on our doorsteps and said hey I don't want to put you or your owner in a bad situation, but I've lost my job. My hours have been cut and I promise I'll pay you. Or if you want me to, I'll pack up right now. I don't want to go through eviction when it's, when it's back available. I don't want to tell you I can pay you what I can't pay you. But if, if it's better for me to just walk away and clean the place and turn it back to you good and new and perfect, I'll do that. 
that was the first time in our history that we had seen people actually cooperating without being forced to cooperate. Now, don't get me wrong. We had some people who took advantage of the situation, but it was nowhere near the amount that we thought. Yeah. Um, so then what we saw is we saw a lot of cancellations coming into the start of the school years. So, you know, normally for us, June, July, August are really ramping up for SCAD students and for the colleges. So we're just seeing stuff fly off the shelf. I mean, it's like you click, you click submit, it goes to the website, and you're like, oh, I got it, it's mine. Right, you know? yeah. The sight unseen, you know. Um, so in the past, that's where it's kind of been. But this year it was a situation of we had leases already written, and they were canceling leases and saying, forget it, sue me if you need to, because they didn't know if they're going to be able to come here. Oh, that's true, yeah. Yeah, and so we were working with some people. Some people didn't work with us. Some people were just you know jerks about it. Other people were really working with us, and we were working with them. Um, so we have seen an effect of the landlords. You know, what we see now is I can tell you that at the moment, um, we have more rentals currently in our portfolio, the company's portfolio that we manage. We've got more rentals on the market right now than we've ever had because of vacancy. Okay. Um, we also know that most of our competitors are very similar. They have a high vacancy rate as well. I'm not saying high in the fact that they're going out of business, I'm saying high, just higher than normal. Right. Yeah. And so the other problem that we run into, and I, it's funny, I was just having this this conversation, emailing this to somebody before I came here from lunch, is that now you're in a situation where it used to be, you know, that if we have a property and it, it's a little bit dated but it's not bad, it would rent. You just take $100 off per month, $150 off per month, and it would rent. Right. Now, the tenants who are renting are being a lot more cheesy because for the first time they have inventory to choose from. Usually they don't have inventory to choose from. Usually they're literally saying, well, I've missed five properties already, so the sixth property I see doesn't matter what condition it's in or how the landlord is, I'm taking it. Right. And I'll figure it out from there. That's not the case. So I think what's starting to happen at the moment is, you know, companies like us, landlords, we're all having to rethink our process. You know, we're having to now say, we might actually have to redo this unit. And when I say redo it, we never had bad units. Right, you spruce it up a little, right? We like do. The little yeah. upgrades that you wouldn't, you know. Yeah, it used to be maybe you could slap a coat of paint on it. The floors are a little bit dated. The kitchen cabinets are a little bit dated, and you could go with it. But now it seems like in certain cases it's like, okay, we're going to have to repaint this entire kitchen, including the cabinets, or we're going to have to replace the cabinets or upgrade the bathroom. We're having to do things that we wouldn't have normally had to do over the past few years. And are you seeing that affect your properties throughout the whole county, or is it kind of more just downtown? No, I mean, we're, we're seeing it all through Chatham County. Right, yeah, through Chatham now, County. Now, Bryan and Effingham, we're still pretty strong. But I got to say, we don't have as high a presence in those markets as we do in the Savannah market. You know, if you look at our portfolio, I would say, you know, 90% of our portfolio is Chatham County. Right. And then you do a mixed bag of the last 10% of our portfolio between Bryan County and Effingham County. Okay. You know? um, on your guys' projections going forward, have you heard any whispers like a about SCAD coming back? Like, do you know what kind of to expect over the course of the next six months? Like- yeah, we, we have it. And we don't really know what to expect. It's one of the areas that we're, we're very vague on. We don't really know what's going to happen. Um, you know, we, we hope that they start to do stuff in the near future. I think that it goes back to what you were talking about a little while ago, where a lot of the SCAD students are coming from areas that it's very serious there. Yeah. You know, so if you've got SCAD students coming in from Michigan or Ohio or those kinds of places, the situation is they take it very, very seriously there. Yeah. Whereas, you know, us rednecks down here, we're all, <laughs> you know, we're all like, if you, we're all like, if you put some Jack Daniels on that, on that, it'll, it'll wash it right away. No big deal. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So, so I think that the, the one thing that they have is even if SCAD decides, Hey, we're going to open the school back up tomorrow. We're going to space everybody six feet apart. I wonder how many parents actually allow their college student or how many college students themselves make the decision to actually come back. 
until something actually happens with, you know, with Corona. Yeah, well, and the only thing about SCAD is, too, is how many, you know, all the foreign students, right? And, like, a lot of these countries, once you leave... Can't come back. They're really weird about coming back. Yeah, we had yeah. some we have some friends that uh, invest here out of Australia, and um, he could not get a visa. He could not go back. They took, like... He had to, like, renew his visa, like, three times until the U.S. government kind of was just like, yeah. you got to go. Like, we got to find a way to get you gone. And I believe, and I believe we had a similar, similar situation. I mean, um, I believe that when they started shutting down the dorms at SCAD, we were getting phone calls from from foreign exchange students who couldn't get out of the country, and we're like, "I gotta find a place, gotta find a place, gotta find a place." Yeah. And you know, and, and I think, matter of fact, uh, I'm gonna say a friend, but they're more of a, an acquaintance. They were telling me a few weeks ago that they have an Airbnb that they have a foreign exchange student who's renting for like four months. Oh my god. Yeah, he just what I mean, a they gold gave, mine. They gave him a good deal. <laughs> they gave him a really good deal yeah. because they were getting a lot of Airbnb cancellations. Yeah. You know. Um, Think about all those people. I this kind of like off topic, but all those people in March when all those Airbnb canceled and they switched over to long term rentals, and then like a month later everything was back to normal. Yeah. And, they got like- and I and I can I can speak to that. I mean, I have I have a property at Ivy, and you know when March came along, I didn't have any cancellations in March. Um, well, maybe a few, but I mean I didn't have a high drop in March. April, I started to see a few more, not as many as I expected. Yeah. Um, May, things were getting back a little bit normal. People were starting to say, okay, I'm going to do this. And then in like June, July, and August, it's been crazy. In October, I'm trying to do a remodel there now. So I have two units. I have an upper unit and a lower unit. Yeah. So I started. I decided to start my lower unit because of Corona. I was like, well, I have time to finally do this before I had to stop because the neighbors don't want to hear it while they're renting a guest place. And so I started, and now all of a sudden, like October, I was like, you know what? It's October. I'm usually slow in October. I will not block a day out. Well, every time I turn around to book something, somebody else is booked. I mean, this morning I get up and I check my email and there's one for the 19th through the 20, 22nd or 23rd. And I'm like, holy crap, like that's when I was planning on doing windows. Yeah. You know, and so I can't complain. But at the same time, I'm just like, you cannot, you can't really predict anything right now. It's the weirdest, absolute weirdest thing, you know? Yeah, it is weird. I know um, Matt's daddy manages a Hotel Tybee and he kind of said the same thing. Like they took like a little bit of a drop there in like April. Things started getting back normal into May, and then like June, July, August, September, going into October, they're book solid. Right? Like they have, they've been having a hard. Day. At one point, they were down to him, one employee, just the manager at Hotel Tybee. Wow. Just yeah, and they normally I think they keep like a staff of like eighty six. I was gonna say it's a big place. Yeah, yeah it's a big imagine. place. Yeah, so yeah, that's pretty crazy. Like that's how because they even that you know they're a huge company, and even they didn't really understand what was about to happen. You know yeah. I mean? like. I don't think anybody did. I don't think anybody did. I mean, how often do you see a global pandemic? Yeah. Like, it's been 100 years. Which, do you know how much, do you know anything about the last one? About, yeah. with, I don't know anything either. Yeah. I, was gonna ask about it, but. I mean, I did hear something interesting, like, okay, if you look, we're this is jumping back, we were talking about economy. So, a gentleman told me, maybe four weeks ago, and I, and I, I probably should do the research to confirm, but they were saying that, so the money, the money that we received for stimulus, that they deployed for stimulus, PPP and everything, <coughs> It was done in like 14 days. So they yeah. like created it, figured it out, deployed it in like 14 days, right? Printed. Printed, done. Done. Okay. They were saying, he was saying that the amount of money that was given out in 2020 to help cover the stimulus on this one was more than was given out in 20, 2007, That's, yeah. 2008, 2009, and 2010 combined. No, that probably is true because you got to think like the auto industry bailouts were like eight hundred million, or eight hundred billion, which was like the largest. Yeah. 
uh, AIG got seventy five billion, which was like a huge deal. Yeah. Well, they printed six trillion in six weeks. Yeah. Yeah, whatever so, that was. I, so when you hear it in that magnitude, you're like, whoa, 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 back up. 14 and a half days. And like I said, I don't know that that's the exact number because I haven't done the research. No, but, yeah. But that was kind of what he had, he had alluded to. 14 and a half days, they created it, they deployed it, they printed it, they, distri- they shipped it, they distributed it. And that is more money than they did in four years. In the, worst, in the worst, In one of the worst crashes that we had ever seen in our lifetimes, you know, that is absolutely crazy. So when you hear it in that analogy and that magnitude... You're kind of like, wow, this is absolutely a big thing, you know? Yeah. I, um, when we were talking about economy, too, something I was going to say that I didn't, I was, with the whole lumber crisis, right? All these prices are increased. But I think that what's offset that is the low interest rate, right? Because people's payment, monthly payment on this, their new construction house has not really gone up. Yep. But what happens when those interest rates goes up? And, like, we were talking about the lumber doesn't fall, like, that much. Like, maybe they yeah. see, I mean, like, you might come down maybe 25% from where it is right now, right? But, like, even if it comes down 25%, that's nowhere near what it was pre-COVID. Well, so, I was, um, they were telling me, I forgot who was telling me, but somebody was telling me the other day about um, the issue they're going to have with lumber is a false demand situation. So, and and don't hold me to this exactly, but the scenario kind of went that there are some builders across the country who right now, because lumber prices are so high, and they're waiting on permits or different things to do certain things, or they're waiting on workers to be able to do stuff, they're pouring slabs. So they don't need lumber right now. So they're pouring a bunch of slabs. So they're pouring 10, 15, 20 slabs, and, uh, hypothetically. Yeah. And then as soon as the lumber price drops down just a little bit or the inventory comes back into normal, they'll just rush out and buy all the lumber and go ahead and frame a bunch of these houses at one time. Well, the problem with that is they think that they're doing themselves a favor and they're doing the market a favor. But they're just going to... They're going to create another supply and demand issue. They're yeah. going to rush out. They're going to take all the supply. All of a sudden, there's going to be another demand issue. And now that we're back to where we were six months ago, nine months ago, 12 months ago. So they're saying that the globally, not everybody is thinking on the same wavelength of things, and they're trying to figure out how they're going to correct these things, or are they? It just becomes a situation where you're just paying high for lumber forever. And I don't think, I mean, the things that I've read is that there's not actually a timber shortage. It is a manufacturing supply shortage. Yeah, it's the middlemen. It's the people that refine the lumber, right? Yep. If the lumber never stopped getting cut, but I, I heard some statistics. Uh, have you ever heard of Max Maxwell at all? Yeah. Okay, so yeah. Max Maxwell actually put something out last week where he was talking about this exact same situation before COVID. He had a price for $31,000 to build a house and now in lumber, and now it's 55000 or something. Yeah. And he was talking to the manufacturer on the on his show, and they were saying that uh, what the problem is they're having a hard time getting people to come into work because they're, you know, so scared. Yeah. Yeah, which is crazy. Like, I can't even imagine. But, you know. Yeah, I mean, and that's what they were saying is, that, you know, the same thing. I mean, like, uh, you know, like the repair company stuff. Like, we have a repair company, and we do a lot of fencing. We yeah. can't get fencing material right now. Oh, yeah, I bet. Yeah, it's right. like, it's like, and if you do, I mean, there's cases where you're probably standing in the parking lot. I've heard cases where you're standing in the parking lot, and another fencing guy comes over and says, I'll give you 25% more than you just paid for it. You know, and then you make the decision. Do I call my customer and say, hey, I'll give you a 10% discount, and I still make 15% more? Or start a lumber yard. I know. It's like, it's like you know, so, so it's one of those things where, you know, and, and that was another thing that they were talking about is that, the other problem was that the mills only make a certain amount of lumber before they switch over and retool to make something else. Mm-hmm. So they retooled some of the lumber yards to go make fence panels because everybody needed them so much and four by fours. When they did that, there's a shortage in, let's just say hypothetically, two by fours, two by sixes. And now the cycle starts all over again. And right. then when they stop doing that and they start doing two by fours and two by sixes, it flips and now we're short on four by fours and fence panels. So it's a never ending battle that they're up against. Um, you know, the thing that, that I wonder is at what point are, are they going to start looking at other building materials? 
Yeah, you know, steel like, studs. like we're wood. Yeah, like steel studs. Steel studs. I mean, metal beams. I don't know. You know, I don't know if anybody. What's the price on those? The difference on those? I know that I know metal. Them. I mean, steel, steel studs are cheaper actually, right? Than two by fours. I would assume. I don't I know. Think. I don't know if there's some residential building standard issues or like that or whatever. But it just seems to me that there's going to be someone or some people out there that are trying to find a better way, faster way. Because it's two things. I mean, number one, it's you can't get the lumber, and number two, when you can get the lumber, the price is a lot higher. So in some cases. I would assume that there's some people that don't care about paying the higher prices because they're just going to raise their price. Yeah. But if they can't build, they can't build because they can't get the lumber. That's an even, even more horrific issue. You know. What are you guys doing to hedge against that? Like, because I mean, the price. You, I mean, do you foresee the prices getting even higher? Then, like. I mean, I, I think that, that the builders, you know, all builders, and like I said, we represent one. But I think across the board, all builders have a profit margin that they're used to and they want to maintain. And I think that they're willing to potentially cut into that profit margin just a little bit. But at some point, every time the, the wood prices go up, they're going to reprice their homes. Right. Now, the question is, can other home sales pace it fast enough so that we don't have um, appraisal issues? Yeah. Because yeah. let's just say, and, and I mean, I think that some appraisers are taking into account lumber costs and that it's costing more to build a house, so they put that in there as an inflation type of situation. But, I mean, let's just say that, that I, I have a neighborhood, and I build 10 houses, and I build them for $200,000, and they all sell for $200,000. Then the comps in the neighborhood are $200,000. But let's just say that I go to build 10 more houses, and lumber prices have gone up, and I need to build these houses for $240,000. Well, now I'm going to build 10 houses, and I'm going to go to the appraiser and say, I want to sell this for two forty. dollars and I need an appraisal for 240. Does the appraiser say, "Well, the comps are only 200. Nothing's ever sold in here for 240." So until you can get one to sell for 240, this is not a 240 neighborhood. Right. Or do the appraisers and I don't know the answer to this, or do the appraisers come back and say, "Well, prove to us that it cost you more to build the house and that's why the price of the house has gone up." And then you prove to them that you had to pay $40,000 more in cost of all these materials and they say, "Okay, we feel the house is worth $40,000 more organically." Because of natural inflation increases of prices. Have you guys seen any, I mean, like aside from appraisals, have you guys seen any underwriting issues? Like have the underwriters at all have been like, whoa, 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 like this is too much in this neighborhood? No, I mean, we haven't seen any underwriting issues. We have started to see some appraisals come in a little bit short. Um, not from the new construction side, um, but from the retail side. I mean, we had one last week that um, a house on the next street had sold for one ninety nine. It was a wholesaler who bought it. They flipped it. Um, there was another one down the street that the wholesaler was about to um, buy it. They bought it there. They have somebody that's flipping it. They were about to list. And we listed. We got a price at our asking price. And then last week it came in $14,000 short. Now, in that case, what threw us off, um, and this is something if you're flipping to really keep into mind, is that in between the time that our client purchased the property, we did the remodel and we sold the property for the appraisal, other homes in the neighborhood had sold some off market which then created low comps now to throw this off even more this is an fha which means there are even stricter criteria to the right. to the appraisal if this was a conventional they might have been able to go a little further pick different comps but in this case there were some comps that threw us off and they did make adjustments don't get me wrong they took those those low sale prices and then they took them and they did some additions for square footage. They did some additions for conditions compared to ours and that kind of stuff. But it still cut us short. And if you would have been able to take those few properties that a, that a, a wholesalers had taken out of the equation, then at that point we would have come in correct. 
So we're seventeen thousand dollars short. So what do you do? And what ended up happening? In our case, luckily we had the profit margins. Yeah. The client won't make as much as they were gonna make. The client's not happy about it. We cut a little of our commission. You know, we uh, we talked to the bank about cutting part of the origination fee to keep the deal together. Um, we cut a little bit of closing costs here and there. The uh, the attorney's working with us, so everybody's working with kind us. Of like nickel and dime to seventeen grand. Everybody, every, we didn't get a seventeen thousand dollars. Basically, we got a few thousand dollars here and there. We went back to the client and said, you know, we represent you as the seller. We can either walk away from this deal and try to start again, but now we're going to get sixty or ninety days, cost to hold, cost of utilities, all these other things are going to, and somebody may vandalize the property. It may have to find another buyer. Maybe in the same situation. So what do we do? So in that case, we cut what we could. We re-ran the numbers. The numbers look close enough to where they are willing to be. And we're going to go to close. We're just waiting for underwriting to complete. You know. So you uh you know sometimes you got to just deal with the hand you're dealt. Yeah, it, and I'm sure like you're used to dealing with problems like that, right? Like I we I had Win Martin from um, Trophy Point Realty. I don't know if you know. Win no, I did. I've um, done a couple deals with Win. Me and we were talking, and he said that that's kind of what's irreplaceable about an agent, right? About the a realtor in the traditional sense is that all this stuff is moving online, and it's really easy to say, "Well, why do I need this person?" But yeah. when things get crazy like that, you know, things get complicated. Can an algorithm solve that problem and deal with all those relationships and manage that whole? And, deal? and you just you just hit the nail on the head. The relationships. I mean, because if it wasn't for a relationship with the with the buyer's agent. If it wasn't the relationship the buyer's agent had with the lender, if it wasn't my relationship that I have with the investor who is my seller, you know, um, it just wouldn't work that way. You know, because if it was a big corporate situation where there was nobody involved in everything else, that company would be like, no, we're not cutting our commission. Right. We'll just let it sit on the market. We'll move on to the next deal. Not a big deal. But for me, it's one of those things where I'm like, okay, well, I know this client's going to do four, five, 10, 15, 20 more deals with me over the next whatever because they've done this many so far. So why not cut a half percent? Don't even argue about it. Don't even have, let them ask. Just volunteer it, you know. And, and I know that some agents and some brokers will look at that and they're sit, they're they're going to be sitting on the other side of the, the computer or their phone or whatever they're listening to this one. They're going to be like, he's crazy, to just give up money, you know. But the <laughs> fact is, I mean, if you look at it, it's like okay, for me, I think a little bit bigger. The picture's a little bit bigger. I look at it and I say, okay, I can give up a half percent today. I can still make three percent, three point one percent, whatever it is, or I can put this back on the market. I can keep my half percent, and I can put more advertising dollars out, which I'll never recoup. I can put more time into this deal, which I'll never recruit, recoup. I can I can do more of everything and never recoup it. I'm better off just to cut my money now. But you've got some realtors and some brokerages who will say, no, I'm never going to cut my price. If I cut my price one time, it sets me up for failure. Now, for me, I just put the caveat in there. Dear Mr. Client, I'm doing this as a favor because this deal came in low. But the next deal that we do full price or we get pretty close to, I'm not going to do this every time. Right. But in these in these unique scenarios, we will help you and we will work with you to make this work right. You know, and that's what we're there for. But you're right. I mean, and, and Wynn had it exactly right. I mean, there are certain things that you cannot replace a realtor for. It's a relationship business. Um, it's not just transactional. Right. That's the way to put it. A lot of people think that real estate is just a transactional situation, and in some cases it is. I mean, Zillow's made it more so, I think, right? But oh, they have. And yeah. I don't know if you, did you see their announcement last week? What's their announcement last week? So they made an announcement last week that they are going to open real estate brokerages. Oh, that's not that surprising. Right? Yeah, it's not. We all knew this was the case. They said they weren't. They said they weren't. So they're going to start in Phoenix and Atlanta, and they're also not going to do traditional real estate. What they're going to do is they're only going to brokerage their own stuff to start that they're buying and then they're reselling and they're not going to do it with realtors. They're going to do it with on-staff licensed people. 
So that's how they're going to start out their model. And then they're also going to join the MLSs in those markets, and they will list the properties in the MLS just like normal. They'll pay commission like normal. There'll be a normal brokerage in that particular aspect. And I think it's just their next step to become a real estate brokerage. I mean, they did it with mortgage. They did it with buying. I just think it's their next step to, to try to just do all be all. I want to uh, go on record to saying this right now. I think that Zillow's long-term plan is they're going to try to replace the MLS. I agree. Like, I think what's happening is is they've gotten themselves in such a position where the MLS feels like they need Zillow. Yep. And so now Zillow gets more and more and more, right? And someday... So, you know, that, that it, the it can be fixed. You think it's not too far gone? Here, here's, here's, you know, and, and we talk about this from, you know, I told you I'm the president of the MLS. Yep. We had a similar conversation yesterday in a meeting with the board of directors, with all these things and how Zillow's done and everything else. You know, if... Zillow can't do some of the things that they do without the MLS data. Yeah. No, yeah. absolutely not. And we've we we let we let the wolf into the hen house. We thought it was a good thing for us. Our agents wanted it because they wanted the advertising and they were giving agents more business and everything else. And then as it evolved, we realized it was too late. But it can be corrected. And the way that it could be corrected in my opinion is that if if all of the real estate brokerages in a market and the MLS could come together and all agree to shut off the feed to Zillow, the only data they would receive is what they have to go and get, and they would have to double their cost, I would assume, to go out and do the scraping and the scrubbing to get that data, okay? Yeah. Because they also have to scrub some of the data now. Like, for example, the MLSs, most MLSs do not give them sold data. That's the most important data. They don't give them sold data. So Zillow has to go and scrape that data and find it from county record. So which is almost like fifty percent of the time that's wrong. Right? And on, on top like, of that it's slow. Yeah, it's very very slow. slow. So yeah. they're having to scrape the data from there or wherever else they're scraping from. So they're having to do those other things which increases their cost. So I think that if multiple markets would do that, it would work. You know, because they've done things that are just absurd. I mean, do you know what they did to real estate companies for rentals? No. So a few months ago it used to be that all of us would syndicate through our softwares, not just the MLS, but through our softwares. We would syndicate all of our rental properties as a property management company through a third-party software to Zillow. Yeah. Well, they showed up with like 60 days notice and said, hey, guess what? We're going to start charging all of you now to put them on here per day. Per day? Per day. So it's like, okay, hypothetically, $2.67 per listing per day that you're going to pay for these listings to be on Zillow in the rental thing to get premier status. And even if you don't get premier status, you can't be in here unless you pay. So the one thing that did get negotiated out of that is if it goes through an MLS, they won't charge because they still want the MLS to play nicely with them. So that actually forced all of the more, uh, uh, property management companies to go and start putting all their listings in the MLS, which they didn't always do for rentals before. And we didn't for a couple reasons. Not because we didn't want the data there, but because lots of times we put a rental market rental on the market, it's it's rented before we can even get it in the MLS. Right. It's like no point. No point. Now, yeah. the other reason they could have done this was because they're getting erroneous data. The data wasn't very strong. And if it goes into an MLS, it's got to be clean. So it goes in the MLS clean. Now they're getting clean data. Which makes sense. Yeah. Maybe they're yeah. just like, yeah, and you can have a lot of scammers, right? Like if it's just like an open market to yeah. post whatever you want and you don't have any kind of financial consequences for putting anything on there. Exactly. You know. So, you know, but it's just the way that they go about things sometimes, you know. But, you know, I think it's one of those things where 
you know, we've heard for years, Redfin was going to put us out of business. Zillow was going to put us out of business. Truly, it was going to put us out of business. HubZoo was going to put us out of business. You know, I think that it's, they try to keep it transactional. Yeah. We try to create relationships. You know, we, you know, I don't know many of my investors who'd, who'd want to just deal with a with an AI situation or a computer situation buying property all day. If that's the case, they'll go straight stocks. Yeah. I mean, I mean that, that's what it would be. The thing about Zillow that's different than Redfin and everybody else, though, is like, well, me and Wayne were talking about this, too, at the same time. You have them starting the We Buy Houses themselves, right, in some of these bigger markets. Yep. So what happens if that starts rolling out farther and farther? They have the power to manipulate the Zestimate, right, they which they trust, they do. which people trust, and then buy the house, and now if they list it on the back end, like, they're the one-stop shop. They're the monopoly of the market. They right? are. They are. I mean, I, I, I totally get it. I mean, I, I think, I still think it becomes a situation like... They're, they didn't do as well as they thought they would do in those cases. I mean, Oh, yeah, they're getting crushed as yeah. far as like profit margins on those. Oh, yeah, they're, they're not making huge, they're, losses, they're, right huge losses on those things, yeah. you know. Um, so I don't know. I don't know where it all takes us. I mean, I think that they're trying to figure out just as much as we're trying to figure out. I think every day they're trying to evolve like we're trying to evolve. Um, I think they've got more capital capital money to, to evolve with than we do. Yeah. You know, they can throw away more stuff. I mean, you know, we're, you know. We're, we're trying to make it around that, whereas they've got the money to be able to do it, and they've got the investors to be able to do it. They took billion-dollar losses on those we-buy-houses things, and no one's even talking about it, really. Yeah. Like, they mean, don't even know. Their bottom line wasn't, like, really affected, like, at all. And it's, you know, and, and, and the way one of, the way one of our, one of my um, colleagues and friends and, and board of directors yesterday, he goes, he goes, I always feel like Zillow is a situation where, you know, um, look at this hand. And if everybody can't see me, I got one hand up, yeah. and I've got one hand down, and it's always like, look at this hand up here while I'm robbing you down here. I mean, that yeah. was something that, that, a, that a good friend and a, a real estate colleague said yesterday, and that is true. I mean, a lot of those companies have kind of been that way. I mean, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I think the, I've said it for a couple of years, and I feel like I maybe missed the boat um, with the whole Corona COVID thing. Was I've always felt that whoever creates a smoother, easier way to do the real estate transactions yeah. and the financing is going to be the winner. And I don't think anybody's really doing a good job at trying to figure that out. I mean, I think if somebody goes along and says, okay, you know, we can show you all these properties this way. You don't have to come and see them. And then when you really do like one, you can come and see them. And then you can do all the financing in one place. I mean, think about how it is when you buy a house now. I go out, I steal time with a realtor, they show me a bunch of houses that I may or may not like, I spend the day with them, and then after that's said and done, i got to send a bunch of paperwork that I already sent to the realtor because the mortgage company won't accept it from the realtor. I've got to send all the same data now again over to the mortgage company, and the mortgage company goes through it, and then the mortgage company doesn't get it approved, so i got to go to another mortgage company. I mean, what if it was what if it was more like car loans where you threw everything into a system and all these companies came back and bid it on it? Yeah, what if you could do like a portal? Yeah, maybe do like yeah. instead of having to like drive around town with the real estate agent, you're like all these houses have three D tours, right? Which they're moving that direction anyway. Three D tour all these houses. You can lower it down to like two or three, so you're not wasting multiple days with the realtor, right? You're just one day I'm just gonna look at these my three favorite and then okay, let's put in an offer. So you just upload whatever documents you need to that system. And, and everybody gets it. And everybody gets it. Whoever yeah. needs it, whoever you whoever you grant access to gets it. Yeah. You know, and everything kind of goes smooth. The attorney uses that portal, everything else. I mean, I think until somebody kind of figures that out, and there's been a couple people who've tried to do something similar and they're working on it, but it's just been one of those things where it's kind of a failed a failed scenario. 
I think somebody really kind of needs to make the Uber effect, if, if you will. I mean, that's a good way to put it is it's so easy. Why do you use Uber? Even when you're getting overpaid, you're overpaying for a damn for a damn ride. I mean, it's convenience. It's convenience. That's it's one click of a button. Amazon. All of my stuff is lo- is Amazon. Exactly. Yeah. All of my stuff is already saved with you. Everything is already there. It's a click of a button. And when you say it's going to be here, it's here most of the time. Yeah. You know, it's just absolutely positively is here. Same thing with Uber. You know, I mean, what if you could what if you could streamline that process? And I think that the same thing goes for, you know, wholesaling or anything else. I mean, I think that if 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 people were kind of looking at something that same way for wholesaling where it's like, okay, you know, bam, here's the information, here's your offer, you know, here's the, here's what the market looks like, here's what everything is and it just kind of does everything for you. You know, I think that that would, you know, get everything along the way. I mean, the attorneys involved in that process, even with a wholesaler, I think it would be something really cool that, that nobody's really doing a good job with. You'd have to think of a way to make that happen, I think, at a small level before you roll. Because the real problem would be there's all these different fringe lawyers that people use, right? All these different fringe mortgage companies. So, like, if you had, like, one portal, I think it would be difficult to get all these people, all these tiny lawyers and mortgage companies from all around to, like, subscribe to the... I don't I mean, think it, I don't think it's a subscribe thing. I think it's more of a you just open the portal up for that individual whenever the time needed. I mean, but like, what if the lawyer, you think like the more these small mortgage companies would just be like, like how do you convince them to take that documentation that's in that system? Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you'd have to find some sort of security encryption, you know, so that the documents are secure, you know, they're proper, you know, they're accurate, those kinds of things. I mean, there's got to be something that you know we can we can figure out. There's got to be something. We're gonna talk after the show. Yeah, I mean, that's, 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 I mean, that's a scenario of, that's a scenario of, you know, I think that's where people get stuck, where we're stuck at right now. It's yeah. like, well, well, that's not possible. I mean, I'll give you. Well, a, I mean, it's possible, right? Like, I'll give you a great, I'll give you a great one. So I learned my lesson with my wife, and she's going to love this when she hears this. So I remember back in like, um, I don't know, late 90s, early 2000. Yeah. I used to sell cell phones. At one point during high school, I was trying to figure things out before I got in my business, before I got in my first business. I sold cell phones. I worked at a couple cell phone stores and everything else. And, um, you know, cell phones, it was like the smallest you could have one, the best it was. Like a little small flip phone or whatever. They had yeah. Little, yeah. So, so uh, I remember we were sitting down talking one day and she's like, wouldn't it be cool if just all of this shit that we have here was in a phone? And it's like your calculator and your this and your like that and your navigation. And I was like, you know how big that damn phone would be? That'll never be possible. You know, and I'm a, and I'm a tech and I'm a tech geek, and I was like, that would never be possible, honey. Like, you know how big that phone would be? And and so here we are today, and it's like everything in the Radio Shack ad from 1990 is in the phone. It's crazy. Plus more. Yeah. I mean, plus more. I mean, whoever thought that you'd be listening to this podcast on that cell phone right now or watching this if we were recording it or watching your videos that you're making or doing our virtual tours, you know, those kinds of things. But I mean, I think it's that, that the point of that is, you know, I think sometimes we just don't ask the questions and sometimes we just don't explore the options. I, I think that it's small-minded to think that all those small people won't get involved. Now, do I think you have to encourage them? I think you'd have to sit down and give them a benefit cost analysis and a benefit analysis to say, this is why you should do this. Do you want more clients? Because the people who are coming up and going to be your home buyers next and are your home buyers currently, they are now used to convenience. They're used to the Amazon of it. You know, those kinds of things. Yeah, it's almost like creates a situation where either like you get on board or get left behind. Like, like get, if you get the biggest players on board, then like small guys just kind of follow. Otherwise, they're going to yeah. not get anybody. Yeah. Yeah, maybe you're right. Yeah. yeah, that might be true. Yeah. Um, who do you listen to? So, like, are 
is there any like educational resources that you follow, books you're listening to, you know, whatever? So I mean, I'm a big music listener, so I listen to a lot of music. But you know, I'm uh, I watch like the Fox Business and the the Bloomberg every day. You know, I listen to those kinds of things, watch those kinds of things. Um, you know, Bigger Pockets. Okay, yeah. I'm, I'm into the Bigger Pockets podcast and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, those are kind of my main ones. I mean, some of the other stuff I listen to, I don't know if you've ever um, listened to it, but How We Built This. Oh, yeah, I love How We Built oh, This. Oh, that's awesome. So that. that's one of my favorite ones. I'll put that in the background. Um, I bring up the Patagonia episode, like, all the time. Have you heard the Otterbox one? No, not yet. Dude. It's good? You need to go listen to Otterbox. I'll have to go check it out. The Otterbox one is awesome. And the other one that I haven't listened to the full thing on, my wife said it made her cry, was the Chicken Salad Chick one. Oh, I haven't heard that one. Yeah, either. it's a newer one that just came up, but my wife said that the chicken salad chick one is just amazing. So you got to listen to that one. But you know, so how we built this is pretty good. Um, I'm trying to think. There's a couple other podcasts that I just listen to randomly and stuff like that. But I, I don't do a whole lot of reading. Um, I do do a lot of forum stuff. So I'll go online in the groups. I'll do a lot of Facebook groups. I'll do a lot of forum groups. That stuff. Um, what forums are you big on? So. Bigger pockets. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple Salria or not Salria, but Ria type ones that I'm into that kind of stuff. And then on the groups, I'm in a number of Facebook groups, you know. Um, and then I've been listening to a lot of the Grant Cardone stuff. Okay, yeah, yeah. My wife actually got me into that. I mean, she, um, I had never really heard of him, and like about a month ago, she was like, "Hey, if you like, I'm listening to this dude, and he's just like awesome and this <laughs> that, and this." So I started kind of listening to him, and and so she's got me into that, and now I'm like following him on Instagram, and I'm seeing all of his stuff on Instagram. You know, so so his that's pretty take cool. on multifamily so interesting, I guess. Yeah. Well, he's extreme anyway, right? Yeah, like his 10x rule and stuff is. A, a couple other, I mean, if you go and like um, look on Instagram, there's a number of them. Like um, one of them is like uh, I'm trying to think of it, uh, Millionaire Mentor. Yep. So yeah. Millionaire Mentor. I mean, there's four or five of them that I follow on there, and I end up reading a lot of articles and stuff that they push out. So you know, I, I do a lot of that kind of stuff. And then um, uh, you're her Flipboard. Never. Okay, so Flipboard's an app. And you go in and you put in your hashtags and you go in and put in your likes and dislikes. So for me, I have, you know, I like fishing. So fishing is one of my categories. Um, I like business, entrepreneurship, investing, real estate investing. And what it does is after you put in all this stuff into the app, it actually pulls back articles that are related to just those things what? from all over the world. Yeah. That's so if I cool. So if I pull it up on Flipboard right now, I can pull it up and put in real estate. And when I click on the real estate tab across the tap top, it'll be like, hey, today in Australia, this multi-billion dollar home that was owned by such and such sold, or this time in New York, blah, 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 blah. Right. And I see all kinds of articles, but it pulls all these articles from all these different places into this one thing. It pulls from like... um the uh, the Harvard Business Review. It pulls from the New York Times. It pulls from you know the Daily Journal. So you're like reputable big publications. Yep. Like with it, really, it pulls really it. I'll have to show you after the podcast. But yeah, it pulls definitely. it pulls all that stuff. So if you haven't downloaded Flipboard, I mean I've got it on my iPad. I've got it on my phone, and that's kind of where I go through in the morning sometimes and look through. And it also has like one page that pulls everything, like all my different stuff. It pulls it into one screen and says this is like in your daily view. Of things, you know, and it pulls everything together. So Flipboard's a cool one. So I'll read a bunch of articles through there, but it's not anything specific. You know what I mean? It's just that kind of stuff. Just like whatever you're feeling that day. Whatever I'm feeling that day. Whatever. Yeah. It, well, it's already hashtag. You've already put in all, all of your likes and all your dislikes. You've thrown them in there. You've already sorted it, and it all brings it back into one location. Oh, like populates it like your Facebook feed or whatever. There you go. For news articles. Yep. 
That's kind of cool. Okay, that's it, a great concept. It's forums and news articles and all kinds of stuff. It all pulls it together in one location. It's pretty cool. So, you know, if you and the listeners haven't haven't done it at Flipboard, yeah, I'm definitely gonna check it out. Yeah, I'll check it out with you. But Flipboard is Flipboard is the way to go. My, same thing. My wife got me into that. She was using it a few years ago, and you know, so I'll get on there every morning and kind of look at that stuff. You know, but I mean, a lot of the groups have gotten really popular for me. Going in and seeing the real world stuff of what I see other people doing. Yeah. And the other thing that I've been doing a lot of is I've been joining facebook groups that aren't in savannah okay yeah because i get a lot of ideas from other markets so you know like i I'm, i've got a couple of them that i'm in like um california okay because a lot of their stuff comes east it comes from the west to the east you know what i mean so i'm on a couple of facebook groups there where they're posting properties and doing stuff but i'm seeing stuff that's different so i'm like okay well i can get some ideas from here and i'm ahead of the curve because nobody else here is really doing it right and i do the same thing for real estate on my real estate side when we're looking at our real estate marketing i'm following all these other things from other areas and i kind of take that as my inspiration to kind of pull things together i uh i can't recommend the dallas groups enough check out the dallas, dallas groups. groups yeah because it's really competitive yeah, there right yeah and you got like a lot of people from california that have been moving there so i think that uh people are forced to get a little bit more innovative and so we've been finding a lot out of out of like the dallas area because we actually have an office there too so anyway. okay but um how about do you do any audible you're, you're no, I've tried it before and I, I've used it before, but I don't. I haven't done much of it. The problem that I have with Audible is, is so I was doing it and then I would get so busy doing what I'm doing that I wouldn't pay attention. Yeah. And I spent my entire time re, re uh, like going yeah. Back, yeah. And then I'm so I'm so all over the place all day until I lay down. I mean, I literally am all over the place until I sit down later that night. And by the time I go to put Audible on at night, I just fall asleep. <laughs> so it's one of those things where you know I would love to read more. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I had a friend of mine who um. Who is who wrote a book? He just wrote it and he wanted everybody to read it, so he sent it out. And he kept saying, "Did you read it? Did you read it? Did you read it?" And I was like, "I really have to tell you that I don't read a lot. You know, unless it's a contract. You know, I don't really read a lot, and I don't. Right. I mean, I read some articles here and there, but it's all short stuff that I can do. You know, while I'm waiting for a meeting or while I'm between something or you know, you know, this and that and this. I mean, but I just I don't really have the time, unfortunately, to sit out and do a whole lot of long, you know, long books or, or listen to a lot of stuff like that." You know, if it's stuff that I can kind of clip into, clip out of, you know, it, it's pretty good. I got you. Um, I wanted to ask too. Day one, let's say there's a day one agent or day one you back at day one. What advice are you giving? So day one, um, create your contact list. Sit down, take a spreadsheet, put the name in the first line, put the address in the second line, put the... Um, put their phone number and their email address and go through and take the time to think of every person you know. And when I say every person you know, I'm talking about your mama, your mm -hmm. daddy, the guy that you've talked to for 10 years at the gas station every morning. I'm talking about everybody you know. Even if you don't know their information yet, go through that list and create it. And what you'll realize is that you have a bigger list of a sphere of influence than you believe. So that was the first thing you would do. You would take that and you'd pull it all together and you have this long list. It'll motivate you because you'll have this long list of people and you'll never even realize how many people you had. You will use that list for the rest of your career because that list can be imported and exported a million times into a million different locations. I still work off of the same list that I created in 2007 when I started this business. And it has grown to thousands and thousands of people. One of the tabs has all the realtors. 
one of the tabs has wholesalers one of the tabs now has all the contacts that I've sold to over the years, all the buyers, all the investors, and there's the same spreadsheet that I've worked on. Now it's converted. It went from Excel to, you know, to uh, to whatever uh, Sheets, which is what well, whatever Apple's thing was, and now it's in Google Sheets. But the first thing that we tell every one of our agents that we bring on board, um, one of the first things is that hey, you need to sit down and figure this out. The next thing that I would do, especially if you're getting into a business, is take that list and send a letter. To every one of them like a physical a physical letter okay to every one of them first of all people aren't used to getting letters yeah okay second of all you think that everybody knows who you are and what you do because you're a family member they don't know they think they know you know i mean it, you know it's, it's one of those things where if you're starting real estate or starting wholesaling send your mom a letter and explain what you're really doing because you can't explain it well enough when you're sitting there with her because you're everything else in your life you know explain that hey my name is George Myers, and I'm now a wholesaler, and I'm now doing this, and this is what I'm looking for, and this is what I'm doing, and this is how I can help you help me, and this is how I can help you help you. You know, and just do a thing and send it to everybody because out of sight, out of mind is the situation. I mean, and, and, and that, I'll give you a real-life example of that. There was one year I was at a, um, and I use this example all the time, there was one year I was at a, a family reunion, and I walked in, and I'm saying hey to everybody, hey, how are you? Haven't seen you in a year or two, blah, blah, blah. And one of my cousins walks up, and he's like, hey, man, how are you? And I'm like, hey, how are you? And he's like, oh, we're awesome. We just bought a house. And he just realized and remembered that I was a realtor. And I wasn't offended. Yeah. I wasn't offended. You know, I was wondering, like, well, why not? But I wasn't offended. And he's like, oh, man, I just totally didn't think. And that moment made me realize that it was out of sight, out of mind. I took for granted the fact that I see my cousin once a quarter, passing or whatever, and he's on Facebook that he would remember that I was a realtor. But the fact was, there was another person who was a friend of a friend who he sees more often. They weren't out of sight, out of mind. But if I would have sent something periodically to him or kept in front of him somehow, some way, he would have remembered me as a realtor and he would have called me. So you follow up every, you know, how, and how, so how do you follow up then and then like how often? So for me, I don't follow up as much as I used to because I'm not doing as many transactions the way I used to now that I have the company. I do a lot of the operations for the company, right. those kinds of things. And I have a group of buyers that I deal with, my investor group, and I refer everything else to a lot of my agents in the company. But I recommend that once a quarter you're sending some sort of postcard. There's even companies for very affordable, cheaper than, and this is the other thing I will say to people, you know, it's not always cheaper to do it yourself. The amount of time that you're losing doing something yourself, that's something that I had to learn the hard way. You know, it was always like, okay, I'm going to make t-shirts. You want how much for t-shirts? I can print t-shirts myself. I heard somebody say one time that uh, rich people trade time for money, or poor people trade time for money, and rich people trade money for time. Yeah. yeah. That's a great way to put it. I've never heard that, but that's an absolute amazing way to put it. And that's what I've started to learn. You know, I've started to learn that sometimes, you know, and, and it seems odd. I mean, even around my own house now, there's things that that I used to do. For example, we got a new house about a year ago. It's got a beautiful yard. It's got a beautiful view. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to cut my own grass. I'm going to go back to cut my own yard because it has an amazing view on the water. Yeah. You know, and I'm not bragging, but it was, the, it was just the scenario. So I, uh, I bought a zero turn lawnmower from a friend who was, who was selling his and it was a great lawnmower and I'd get on it every Friday afternoon. I drive around the yard and I'm like, yeah, this is great. And then it started getting warmer and warmer and then it started becoming a burden and this and that. And then there were times where I felt backed up because I didn't get to do some of my work because I had to cut the grass. And all of a sudden I was like, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm stressing myself out to get this done. I'm doing 
a half-assed job doing it. And then on top of that, it'll cost me $300 a month to have this done. And I could go make $3,000 selling a house right now. Right. Or wholesaling yeah. a house or buying a house or flipping a house. I can make thirty grand. Yeah or, yeah. Or, yeah, or even the family time or whatever it may be. I mean, there were so many other things that I really wanted to be doing. And I thought I was being so productive. And I thought I was giving myself some time and saving myself some money. But when I look at it, I'm like, okay, I'm saving, what, $3,300 $3, a year? Maybe a little more, maybe a little less? Yeah. But I'm like, well, what? so it goes back to your, your comment a minute ago. I mean, I was trading... You know, I was trading that time for, you know, for, for whatever. I mean, but so I, I've kind of flipped the script now. And I mean, so the one thing I can say is it used to be that I was like, oh, you know, we're going to print all of our postcards in house and we're going to package them and we'll save a lot of money because then we won't pay $3 a piece. But the fact is there was so much productivity. There is so much productivity lost yeah. trying to do that. Go out and find you a company that'll, that'll package it and ship it and everything else. Um, I can tell you that even for like my management company, they don't mail any of their own letters. They put them into a system. They do what they call VPO, which is virtual post office. Yep. It goes out. It gets shipped. It gets packed. And somebody does it. We know they do it right. And we're also not waiting for that godforsaken mailman to pick it up at the front desk. You know, so so that's one thing I'll say. Um, the other thing I would say do is, is just start to build those relationships. You know, do it through people you know. Start to build those relationships. Start to identify the people who are going to be your best sphere of influence. Um, you always hear that you become what is what is the saying? You always become the six people you hang out with, or yeah, show me your five friends, I'll show you your future kind of thing. Yeah, kind of thing Same like concept, that. Yeah. Same concept. So you know what you have to realize is yeah, you got a lot of great friends and they're great to hang out with on the weekends and stuff like that, and you know, and, and you can do some things and you're not trying to shut them off. But at the end of the day, if you're going to be successful, you need to pick your your professional sphere of influence very very well. So I mean, if you're if you're thinking, and I'm not saying this happens every time, but if you're thinking you're going to be the best wholesaler in the world. Yet you're still going to hang out with the three friends who, you know, who aren't motivated at all and are in between jobs all the time and everything else. They're just going to drag you down because they have the free time. Yeah. You know, and, and I've learned that a number of ways. I mean, I'll give you a, a funny example. I've got a couple of friends who um, are older and they're semi-retired. They're the worst friends to have. Uh, yeah, sure. out. They call. You want to go golfing, man? Yeah, there it is. Fishing, yeah, and, 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 you, and you feel bad because they're getting depressed because they can't go. Yeah, you know. Um, so it's like you know, and I gotta say, I'm spending more time doing things. I mean, I'm taking more time for myself than I've ever taken. Um, but it, it it really is true. I mean, surround yourself with those people on your daily professional level of, of who you want to be and what you want to be. Surround yourself around those people, and that will help create it. I mean, and it can be anybody that you know. Lots of people would say, well. You know, I don't want to hang out with lawyers. Well, no, you really should go hang out with a lawyer. Yeah. The lawyer's going to get more deals than anybody. You know what I yeah, mean? That's I, yeah. Yeah, I get lawyers who who call me up now and say, hey, man, I got this property that's going to come up because people are going to get divorced. You know, hey, I got this property that's going to come up for your clients because they're going to be going to bankruptcy. So my point to that is pick the friends on the list, not because of certain things, but for certain things. You know? Yeah, like not taking advantage of your friends, but like your network becomes your net worth. Right? And tell them. Like, yeah, like, and go tell them. I mean, go 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 call up the attorney and say, "Hey, I want to be your friend because I want to be your friend, but I want to be your friend <laughs> because I think that we can grow together." Yeah, and and also be the person to give some mutual benefit. You know, what I mean, let me help you, and you help me too. You know, what I was saying, go. You pat me on back. I pat you on yours. What value do you bring to like a divorce attorney? What can I say like, how well, do you find that? So like, you just sat down, and you just thought like. How do I bring value to this person? And then yeah, 
I mean, that's it. I mean, you you have to sit down and figure out what your business is and what you're going to do. And, you know, you got to find out what your, you know, what your niche kind of is going to be. But in that case, like if I sat down and said, okay, you know, where can I get, where can I get my, you know, my best business, my best self and make friends in both personal and professional friends, you know, so a divorce attorney, well, they probably get a million realtors calling them a day. I mean, what I wouldn't do is just literally call up and just say, hey, this is what I'm going to do. You know, everybody does that. Take them to lunch. Take them for coffee. Take them for a drink. Invite them and pay for them to do something else. I will tell you, we go back to the beginning. Let's always go back to the basics. When I first started in the business, yeah, um, I used to do business lunches. And I would take people doing the same thing. I didn't even realize until we were just talking about that. I used to do very similar things. You know, it's just been my, it's just been what I built myself off of. And it's probably what my mentor taught me and what other people taught me. But when I got into the investment side, I sat down and said, how can I get the most investment clients who have the most money? Now, I could have put something out and got people calling me all day long who don't have any money. I mean, and, and I get first-time investors calling me all day. I got three phone calls on the way here from Chipotle to this doorstep to talk to you. I got three phone calls a day. Three? Who said, hey, can we have lunch? Can we have this? And my question is, for what? Not in a bad, rude way, but for what? Yeah. How can I help you? How can you help me? And, you know, one of the one of the young men, and you can tell he's a young guy, the young man was very, very nice. And he's like, well, I'm just trying to figure all this out. And, and I just, I want to buy property. I want to buy property. I want to buy property. And I'm like, well, have you done anything to prepare yourself to buy property? Do you have any savings? No. Do you have any closing money? No. Have you talked to any lenders? No. Have you talked to anyone? No. What have you studied? Facebook. That was his answer. This is literally true story. <laughs> However long you've been here, true story. So I said, here's your homework. Call these people. Do these things. Find these things. Call me back once you do it. My point is this. I don't mind meeting and helping somebody, but if you've not done any of the footwork, you can't get any help. So sit down and think about what you really need to do to position yourself for the next steps and make a plan. Make a business plan, okay? Every realtor that comes in with us, they sit with our sales director and they make a business plan for the next 12 months. What they're going to do, where they're going to be, how they're going to get there, all these things, and then we hold them to that business plan. So many of us don't do a business plan. A business plan doesn't have to be too formal. It can be as simple as saying, these are the 25 things I've got to do, and these are the goals I'm going to set for the next 12 months, okay? But, you know, back back to the point we were talking about, you know, it's a scenario where I sat down and said, I'm not going to do well in commercial because commercial's, you know, blowing right now. It's blowing wind right now. I can't do it. So I want to do investors. So how do I find investors? How do I find people with cash? Now, I can go sit outside of a nice community at the coffee shop and introduce myself to every one of them that has money and hope they have money. Yeah. But... I needed people who I knew had money, who had credibility and could do something. So what I did is I sat down and I pulled out the internet and I went through and found financial advisors. And here's what I realized. Here's what I thought before I even did it. At the time, the financial advisors were in trouble. They were losing all their business because people were pulling money out of stocks left and right and people were cashing out their life savings and they were cashing out their, their whole life insurance so that they could survive. Right. Right. Well, these guys couldn't afford to buy themselves lunch, you know, hypothetically speaking. Right. For a figure, you know. So I would literally go and call them up and say, let me take you to lunch. Let's talk. Let me help you help me. Would they ask you why you wanted to talk? 
most of them would say, yeah, what do you want to talk about? And I said, I want to talk about your clients. I want to talk about how I can help you keep your clients. I want to talk to you about how you can help your clients invest in something more than you can invest in now. And so at that point, I couldn't afford to buy them lunch. No joke. I mean, it was a point where I was like, okay, this is going to get very expensive very fast. So I was literally going to all of my family members and borrowing the Val packs and taking out the buy one, get one free lunches. And I would literally fold it into four pieces behind my credit card so nobody would see it. And when I would go to pay, I'd give them that coupon behind my credit card so they wouldn't see it. True story. And so it was a buy one, get one free lunch. You know, and I would just make sure that I bought something of lesser value than them. And then that way, the lunch only cost me what I was going to pay for my own lunch. Right. So that's a trick trick that anybody can use because they still do that. Like if you look at, like I think Spanky's does a buy one, get one free lunch menu. I think that, you know, do those kinds of things and stuff like that. But in my case, I would sit down with these financial advisors and I would say, I'm not trying to steal your business. I'm not, I'm, I'm not as good as you are, those kinds of things. But here's the deal. You always say diversify. If you would encourage your clients that are taking all this cash out to, to come and do business with me, now when the market is good, I will in turn tell them to come back to you when the market is good and they'll do stocks with you. And that's what happened. With a number of, a number of local um, financial advisors, we, we, we became friends. And you know a lot of us are friends to this day still. Um, and even out of town financial advisors. I've got financial advisors in other cities who still to this day, when their clients want to diversify, they send them there because they know that when the time is right, I will tell them. You know, when we're sitting at a closing table and they're getting a $100,000 check and they go, what do you want to do with this? And I go, well, I think you should diversify it. I think you should take part of that money, put it in real estate, take part of that money, put it in your bank account, and take part of that money and take it back up to the financial advisor and see what they want to do with it. And you're diversified three ways. You know, so those guys, I, I created a trust level. Now, on the flip side of that, I fulfilled my obligations. Right. I did what I said I was going to do. I didn't forget the people who helped me get there. And how many no's did you get? No's? Yeah. Like, did you ever, how many, like, was there very many people that weren't willing to cooperate? There were. I mean, I will tell you that some of the older people, some of the guys who had been in the business for years and years and years and who were very close to retirement, they were kind of like, I will never let anybody near my clients. First of all, I'm never going to give you a client list. I'm never going to introduce you. I'm never going to do this and never do that because you're going to screw it up. Some people said that, and I understood why. Now I do. I didn't understand then. Some people looked at me and were like, okay, he's done two transactions. He's never done hardly any investment. He's young. He's innocent. He's corrupt. Yeah. There's all these things. You know, it was just like, and I understood it. I didn't understand it then, but I understand it now, you know, because it's one of those situations. But so my point to the whole story is that, you know, think about those people who are going to, who are going to help you. You know, and I tell agents this all the time. You said it earlier. Divorce attorneys, excellent position. They get a million calls, a million letters, everything else. Yeah, they're busier than ever right now. They're busier than ever right now. But the fact of the matter is, you can help them, and they can help you. Even if it's just a matter of giving them free free analysis for six months or something. You know, if you ever just calling up and saying, "Hey, I'm a new realtor and everything else, but don't hang out the phone. I'll do I'll do free BPOs for you." Anytime you need them. What's a BPO? A broker price point opinion. So okay. basically, you give a value on a property so that they can put it before the judge. You know, the wife thinks it's this price. The husband thinks it's this price. What is it actually? And they'll take that information. It's like an appraisal, but not okay. a certified. Um, so so you can do different things like that. You know what I mean? So just you know, go out and try to make those types of friends and everything else. I mean, you know, the other thing I can say is if, if we're – if you're starting out – in wholesaling, if you're starting out as an investor, um, the couple of things that I would do, I would go get a few people in your life. Okay, the first person I would get in your life is a realtor. 
Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Okay. The second person I would get in your life is a closing attorney. Yep. And the third person would be a contractor. Okay, I agree with all three of those. Yep. So it's three places that every day, all day, I see, I see people who say they're wholesalers. I see people who say they're investors. I see people who are putting up that good facade and saying that they're doing these things and they're setting the right tone and they should set that tone. But then when they go online and they go, hey, I need a closing attorney. Yeah. Or, hey, I need I need this or I need that. I mean, don't use those people, meaning don't use them for free all the time. Um, create some benefit for them. Give them some business. Yeah. But at the end of the day, if you don't have those three people, I mean, you're, you're, you're going to have a tough time. You know, you're going to have a very tough time to, to get through that process. Now, you can do it. Don't get me wrong. You can struggle through it. You can be the last minute getting. The, you can be last minute getting the the estimate from a contractor you've never met. And you don't know. You can be the last minute finding a closing attorney to put their name on there, or you're the guy doing amendments to change the closing attorney three times. You're gonna be constantly stressed out, though. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the point. So I mean, the whole moral to all of that we just talked about was, you know, plan, 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 and surround yourself with the people who can actually help you through these processes, and don't be afraid to pay a little bit of money for it. Attorneys cost money. Yep. Realtors, realtors cost money, and and I'm saying this because I am a realtor, but I mean a realtor's worth their weight in gold. Yeah. And nine times out of ten, you can negotiate it to where it's paid for in the in the seller side. Even on a wholesale deal, you can you can include sometimes negotiate that get, negotiate it out just right. Yeah, or um, you can. I don't know. I don't want to like. I don't know if this is like against the rules, but like you can even like do be like, hey, I'll give you a consulting fee out of my assignment that's not against the rules as long as long as it's all documented as long as you agree that that's what it is and yeah and there's no funny business and it's not just a kickback i mean if it was a kickback or something like that that's a different scenario they can't pay you referral fee because they're not licensed but they can pay you as a consulting fee yeah i mean even if it's i mean i have clients i have clients who manage a home like we manage all their homes for them but they have a piece of property that is like their cousin's gonna rent it well there's no point in us managing a piece of property for their cousin Right. They know their cousin. They can collect the rent, and everything else. But in that case, they don't want to rent. They don't want to write the lease agreement because they don't know how to write lease agreements. Right. So they just call up and say, "I'll give you one hundred and fifty dollars to go through this process with them. I'll give you five hundred dollars to go through this process with them. Do what you do. You know, don't be afraid to to pay people to do what they need to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and don't be afraid to use services. And there's enough services out there that you can do it all. Do it all without having to worry about it. I mean, going to the store and buying stamps and printing all that stuff on your on your printer and all that stuff. As many, as you, I mean, if you're doing a few here and there, that's one thing. But if you're getting mass and you're spending you're sending fifty, a hundred of these things out a day, just start VPOing them. Yeah. Yeah. Just start virtual post office. Yeah, you know, I completely agree. We or, tried uh, we tried letters on our own. It just takes too so much time too. Yeah. We're does. doing like seven, eight thousand a month. And, uh, that's awesome. It gets to be too much. Yeah. yeah. You, and there's you, companies out there for so cheap now. For so cheap. Like 40 cents a postcard, 35 yeah. cents a postcard. And we're even using some. We haven't used them in a high amount, so I don't want y'all to think that we have. But, I mean, we've used a few recently just testing them out with handwritten. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, like the handwritten. They take yeah. your hand. They take your handwriting and resubscribe it and, and make it look right, you know, and then they put it out there. I mean, they won't take mine because it looks horrible. <laughs> but, but, I mean, they, you know, that works really, really well, too, because people want to see those handwritten you know things and everything else, you know. So I don't know. I mean, that's kind of that's kind of the, the insight that I would say for somebody starting out. All right. Um, well, I appreciate you coming on. I'm gonna end on that note. I feel like that's a good note to end on. I appreciate. The I appreciate you having me, man. <laughs> it's been great. All right, man. We'll see you next time. All right, man. Thanks. All right.